are about to improve healthcare, everyone. Join Nate, you, and I as we deep, deep dive into what's involved and considered when designing and building a new patient experience in Surgical Tower from the ground up. Look, the pressure is on. If healthcare doesn't step up to the consumer request and needs, hospitals simply won't get funded or reimbursed, period. That's where Nate Ewan comes in and folks who serve their communities in healthcare all around the country and world. I was fortunate enough to work alongside Nate as he as well as others were the driving force in the planning and coordination of the Mount Sinai Medical Center's new seven-story Shulnik Surgical Tower and 34,000 square foot Hillebrandt Emergency Center in Miami, Florida. Simultaneous projects totaling over $275 million. As of late, Nate is currently bringing that expertise and experience to the University of Miami healthcare system as the Executive Director of Value Analysis, where he works alongside some of the nation's top docs in robotics, as well as the Cardiovascular Institute. What's special, as well as unique to this conversation, was and is Nate's ability to balance it all, simply put. Oftentimes, projects like this take over someone's career as well as some of their aspects of their life. Yet, Nate seemed to manage that expectation from day one. Here are some high-level points that Nate and I jump into right away. The relationship of the hospital administrator and third-party vendor partnerships. What's really involved when taking an in-depth look into these forward-thinking projects and desired outcomes for the surrounding community these hospitals serve. Future-proofing, modularity, and expectation management was a main topic of this conversation as well. Let's not forget about the infamous data, data, data conversation, including cybersecurity and technological bottlenecks that need to be ruled out before it's way too late and change orders are rampant. And the biggest takeaway, everyone, it is official. We are now considered the Joe Rogan of healthcare podcast. We did it. We done it. Thanks to you. Thanks to our guest. And I just can't wait to keep on going. Humbled. So thank you all again for all that. I'll call to action. Many takeaways from this conversation, and I plan to build on this important conversation on the vendor-admin relationship, something we in the healthcare industry will all benefit from. As always, be sure to share with others and provide your feedback. We love feedback. The more, the better. If you have a suggestion or would like to share your thoughts on Healthcare 360, be sure to reach out by email at Burgess at scotteburgess.com or visit our website at scotteburgess.com. If you're a new listener to Healthcare 360, Hit that subscribe button on Apple Podcast as well as YouTube. Then head on over to our website and join our mailing list. We release a brand new audio and video episode of Healthcare 360 every Monday and soon every Thursday. So sign up, get informed, and stay in touch. Continuing with our new trend here at Healthcare 360 by taking a minute to appreciate members of the 360 Nation and giving a shout out for the podcast review of the day. This is the five-star review from Roe Rose. This is simply titled Healthcare 360. This is the best podcast I have heard. They are very informative and the subjects are interesting. I can't wait for the next one. Ro Rose, thank you for that feedback and thank you for taking the time to write a review and thank you so much for propelling this podcast forward. Really appreciate the insight and really appreciate you as a listener and part of the 360 Nation. So thank you and send us an email, take a screenshot, do all those things we mentioned before. Can't wait to get back to you. These reviews help in more ways than you know. It's a driver of podcast longevity. Your review will help the nation grow, reach more people, and make more of an impact. So let's keep those reviews coming. Last but not least, all this information, including the contact information for the team at Healthcare360 and Healthcare360 guests, is included in the podcast notes 
and the website description page at scotteburgess.com. All neatly laid out, organized, and easy to follow. Let Michelle know how much you appreciate her and contact her at her Instagram handle at mishburge12, that's M-I-C-H-B-U-R-G-1-2. As always, we appreciate you being here. See you for next week's conversation, episode number 60 with Dr. Christina Rahm, CEO and founder of Cure the Cause, where we learn all about how to properly detox the body and what's really happening inside your body and how polluted it really is. Folks, it's time to take out the trash. Thanks again. This is Scott Burgess. And from all of us with the Healthcare 360 team, we'll see you for episode number 60 only on Healthcare 360. There's a lot to talk about. <laughs> I'm to be honest. I've been waiting for this. You were in my first five. Oh, wow. Wow. Seriously, because some boy. what you've done in all the positions that you've served in healthcare and what you specifically did at Mount Sinai, that tower in the balance, because I actually have a question here. Sure. Quick little outline. I'm going to read out through all that in a second. But the planning, the vision, the process, the involvement of all clinical parties, and then the balance, then the funding. And I'm sitting there looking at the word balance and thinking about you. And I'm like, holy shit. Like, he really did all that. With the day-to-day family life, with a brand new tower being built. Amazing. I will say that when you look at the overall scope and the enormity of the project, Mount Sinai being the only hospital left on Miami Beach, right? right? You know, Steve Sonnerich is the CEO, and he did a great job at putting together a great executive team. The leadership team there all had their own strengths, and that's what helps really does talk about balance, right? When you start thinking about everybody bringing their expertise to the project, it was absolutely amazing. Wasn't a single person doing anything. Yeah, I, I know. I mean, look, I was involved with the project with you. Yeah. There was two key people, you and Matt Bernard. <laughs> yeah, Matt. Matt's a Matt amazing. on the construction side, going through the logistics, working with the architect and the contractor. You from the clinical side. This is the mind blowing stuff. Is well, hold on. Sure, let me sure. introduce everyone to you first. Thanks again, Healthcare Three Hundred and Sixty host Scott Burgess. Across from me, of my friend Nate Ewing. Uh, right now, he presently serves as the executive director of value analysis at the University of Miami, which now is the leading heart program in South Florida. I would say probably in the top three in the country, without question, because of Doctor Joe Lamellis, who's down there as well. Nate has had the distinct honor of working with Doctor Lamellis at Mount Sinai as well as the University of Miami. Go, go even further back. Baptist Actually, and, and Baptist, that's Baptist right. Baptist. Baptist. Uh, so he's been with them for a long time. So he knows what he's talking about. He's been through the ringer and he's served at all levels. He served Miami community at all levels of surgical services in the hospitals and the communities, well, the regions of the communities that he was serving down there. So really appreciate you coming down and talking about this. I was talking to Michelle before he came over and I said, I don't know if anyone's actually done this conversation before. I don't know if anyone's ever had a construction-based, clinical-emphasized, all-around conversation about what we're going to talk about today. I, I don't know. I do know that even within the GPO realm, you know, construction is relatively new. We were with Premier when I was at Sinai mm-hmm. and Baptist um, over at UM. We're with Vizient. They do have conversations around construction, but it's never holistic on major projects. It's yeah, really yeah. around drywall and things, you know, aggregation of overall contracting, but not around the overall process of, yeah. of bringing something to fruition. My questions are simple today, but my God, are they daunting? 
Not, no one believes any of your questions are simple. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so Nate, he's serving right now as the executive director of value analysis at UM. Prior to that, he was at Mount Sinai Medical Center as the AVP of supply chain. And he also served with Baptist Health over as the surgical services manager. And he was also training and educating with the U.S. Navy at the same time. Plethora of experience going through. Here's what he did. Now, I understand it wasn't just him. I did have the, the pleasure of working with them to do the largest project down in South Florida in planning for probably about 20 years before it actually came to fruition. It was a $275 million tower expansion, over 340,000 square feet added to the campus Correct. and for services. It included 10 new ORs, two, new. Um, well, 10 ORs for general, and okay. then the two uh, universal hybrid theaters as well. When we dive into that part of the conversation, not only what the hospital did in eighth division it was ingenious. They built out one full hybrid. The other one was decoyed as a, another cardiovascular suite, but everything's in place. Everything's in place. And this is what everyone on the administrative level who's listened to this podcast now, you need to do what Nate did. He not only put the mounts in the ceiling, he ran the conduits the gas lines, the electrical requirements, everything. So all they had to do was drop, move, install, and go. Right. That's it. Everyone always talks about future-proofing or the future protection or modularity. They don't do it. They don't do it. They say, well, you know, we'll put the mount there, but they're not running the services. And if you're not running the MEP and all those services there, it's going to be really, really hard. On top of that, He's also the only one that I know of that actually had a bi-directional communications to pathology, which stops the surgeon from breaking scrub, which has been done in the past and almost every other institution that doesn't have integrated, a widespread integration within their facility. Uh, I did speak about this on the podcast with uh, Jeff Gusky. Specifically, if you are in scrub and you're performing a procedure and you have to break or disrobe and then walk down look at the margins on a sample and then come back and rescrub in and that's at a speedy time that's about 30 minutes right speedy uh usually it's like an hour plus and that means you're under anesthesia for another hour he had the vision to do that as well emergency trauma bays you've served well in the papers it said seventy five thousand people it's probably way more than that now i would imagine with COVID, probably not, uh, but uh, <laughs> um, Good point. We, we were almost at capacity in the new ED when we opened. That's what kind of reception it had during the opening phase. Yeah. The, the community on Miami Beach really welcomed us and really supported the, the health system. Yeah, that's great. And then the last part here is, which is probably one of the toughest, is luxury suites. There's a lot of people, celebrities, who have a lot of money who live in Miami Beach. And so how you balance all that, the planning I've known about the project forever since I moved down to South Florida. And that was eight years ago. What happens? What needs to happen? What's transpiring behind the scenes politically, although it's not political, but there's political plays there. Whose name's going to go up in the building, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I'll go through a little historical reference mm -hmm. or at least a framework to kind of allow the audience to understand what we both know. The history of it. Steve Sonnerreich is the CEO of Mount Sinai Medical Center and their health system. He actually worked at Mount Sinai, was recruited by HCA, went over to run um, Cedars, that is now the University of Miami U Health Tower. Mm -hmm. They brought him back in 2001 when the organization was losing about $60 million a year. 
he ended up bringing his entire new executive team. They have, I think, one of the best CFOs in healthcare, Alex Mendez over there. Mm -hmm. Alex came in and put together a very strong team. He just came from BAP. He actually came from HCA. Um, he was over at Kendall Which Regional. Guy. He was like, the, I think, the youngest CFO, COO oh, yeah, okay. um, yeah, yeah, yeah. in healthcare. Yeah. Yeah. I work with an Alex Mendez over at Baptist on an ICU mm -hmm. project. That's why yeah. I'm, I'm thinking of that. Alex, I would think he's a pioneer in the CFO role in the way that he looks at running operations. Really? One of the few guys who really truly understand operations and then applies the finance piece of it. Steve will tell the story and you, he said it many times in different interviews, but this was a concept that he had and the board had back when he came over. Bring state-of-the-art ORs and a surgical tower to Mount Sinai. Mm -hmm. So part of the problem, strapped with $60 million of debt, losing $60 million a year, they had the Miami Heart Institute. So that was just about, I think it's less than two miles away. They had consolidated a lot of services. They created a department called the Project Management Office, and it really was looking at expense management. And that's where they brought me in around 2007. So Steve had the concept and the board had the concept of really bringing in this surgical tower back when he came over. Fast forward to 2007, when I came over from Baptist, they were still borrowing about $10 million a year from the foundation wow. to support operations. Just on the cap op side. Just on cap op. Yeah. Yeah. When you look at the operations, it was challenging, right? They're, wow. they're a standalone hospital. When you look at the patient population, about 70% of the patient population come from outside of their primary zip codes. Hmm. So that's a challenge. You're a destination hospital. So, you know, Mount Sinai has always been known, and that was part of the acquisition with the, the prior administration with Miami Heart as a cardiac organization. I think this is where the framework is laid on some of the strategy, right? Because you're talking about the overall concept and design yeah. and the idea of bringing Dr. Lamellis over to really help rebuild the cardiac program came to fruition. And I had worked with uh, Joe over at Baptist. And to me, you know, he's my mentor. I think he is probably one of the best cardiac surgeons in the world. I'm a little biased. Without question. Yeah. Okay. Does it give anyone perspective who have not heard of Dr. Lamellis? Versus cracking a, a sternum bone, okay? That's a bone between your left and your right lung. He's figured out how to do it with a three-inch incision on the right yeah. side. He calls it a minimally invasive. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah, he's termed it the Miami method. He's a Miami boy, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. you, know, um, you know, I would too, right? I think he'd be a great segment for your podcast. Him and his brother, Peter Lamellis. Peter owns MD now, right? He was uh, the original founder of that. Yeah. They have a really great American success story. Their mom and their father uh, immigrated from Cuba, and both of them became physicians, one ER, one cardiac surgery. Mm. And yes, Dr. Lamellis does uh, about a three-centimeter incision laterally, patient right. Um, and he is, I think he still is, the largest valve implant, single valve implanting surgeon uh, in the U.S. He does it all through a head cam, and he's actually had to go out and develop instrumentation because there wasn't instrumentation on the market right. for that. And so when Dr. Lamellis came over with his surgical team, some of the things that we saw very quickly, you know, at Baptist, we had, and I think some of your predecessors from, from the striker world had worked with us over at Baptist. We did home runs and it was old school. And it, it, for the audience who don't know what home runs are, we hardwired cabling through the ceiling tiles and dropped it into the conference room over at Baptist. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Lamellis would display his head cam from a tethered cabled line into one of the data ports that would then send the signal to a monitor for the visiting audience. Yeah. Every week he hosts anywhere from six to seven surgeons through this symposium. 
to educate and train them on how to do the Miami method of minimally invasive cardiac surgery. Obviously, the patient benefits, faster return to work, faster recovery, less time on vent. Most of the patients are extubated that same day. It's significant. It It is. is. And when we brought Dr. Lamelis over, part of the issue was we had none of that infrastructure at Mount Sinai at the time. The ORs had been there from the original build, building. Right. Um, and so I believe it was back in 1950s or 40s, somewhere around there. It was very outdated ORs, which really signified for everybody on the team, hey, we need something here. We did our best to try to, and it was actually a good initial phase to understand the technology, mm-hmm. right? We partnered with Stryker. We did a formal RFP. And when we went out to RFP, we tried to balance all the different players in the marketplace. And we had to make some serious decisions on what the future is going to look like versus what the current state. That really requires engagement with a lot of the medical suppliers. And yeah. an old school guy like myself with all this gray hair. Um, looking good, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, thanks. Um, with a supply chain background, typically the supplier and hospital administrative roles are, are really at conflict, right? We have, you know, competing interests and priorities. That was one of the projects that we really had to start partnering. Let me jump in for sure. a moment. This is where you're different. I understand your role. You understand your role, as do the vendor partners that are out there. Once you pick someone, it's not only because of technology. It's also based on that relationship at the same time and the trust that that comes with that. And, you know, I just I was on LinkedIn uh, just yesterday and everyone was talking about the word trust, trust, trust. There is no really quick way of doing it outside of long term. And that's what you've done. How and you went about that, and I have a whole sure. litany stuff about just the tech side of what you had to consider. Yeah, the OR is important to large, well, the second largest in the hospital anyways as far as revenue production and how the technology is going to involve uh, technology clauses, things of that nature. If you don't have good local service, because that project, that historical perspective you just gave us, is a fraction of time considering the length of application and how it's going to serve the patients long term. Right. Right. Yeah, I, I think a lot of organizations in healthcare base their decisions on a lot of preference versus mm-hmm. really trying to understand. I think we should all be good stewards to whatever organization you're working for. And what that means is understanding what the future is going to look like. Right. Yeah. Um, How I, do you do that? How do you keep up with everything? I'm a little nerd. I spend at least three hours a day reading. Um, and I got three, uh, teenage boys who they absorb and read everything that is out there in existence. And they, I'm sure you know the challenges, right? Yep. Uh, raising teenagers and one off to college, they inundate, they have information overload. Yeah. And so, Hey, what about this? And let's have conversations and just to even be able to keep up with my children. And then, you know, when you look at the millennials in the workplace and they want to challenge and push the envelope and really stretch their learning capabilities, it's an exciting place. That's I've always said that healthcare is probably one of the best industries. If you have a desire to constantly learn, it is. I mean, I'm, I'm going to side bank this yeah. question for later. That's an overarching question or answer response right there. Because the reason why is yes, but at the same time, healthcare is so slow to adaptation to that new tech. It is. I would love to know why, how do you overcome that? Because there's a lot of evolving tech that could really help a lot of people, but the adoption rate and the what ifs, and I don't know what's your, because it's not there yet. People are afraid to take that leap. They are right. They are. And you know, if, if, Towards the end, we can get into that. 
because that's probably a, a really a passion play for me. Yeah. Um, I spend a lot of time doing research on AI, uh, machine learning, mm-hmm. automation. Um, I'm doing a data scientist course now and really what we can use in healthcare to really deliver optimal care. Yeah. But you, do you want me to go back to- Well, yeah, let's to the planning. The planning. So you, you talked about the planning and how this all came. Just the thought and idea mm-hmm. and imagination of a brand new patient tower. Right. So I can't take a lot of credit for that. That came from, obviously, the strategic vision uh, that executive team had. And once it was decided that we had moved forward based upon, you know, and, and I and I probably would be remiss if I didn't actually talk about some of the finances as part of the planning, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, with Mount Sinai losing so much, after Dr. Lamellis' first 12 months, we were in the black, right? And then there, you know, there's something called the halo effect where if you are a center of excellence or at the top of your game, other referrals come in for other service lines sure. that weren't noticed before. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all ships rise in that. In and that's that where you go to your interventional program too, because your interventional yes. program went through the roof. It did. Prior to Dr. Lamellis getting there, um, we had one interventionalist. We ended up adding in, uh, having two. They brought in uh, John Chaluka, who's a pioneer in the in the space yep. for neurointervention, cardiac intervention, large STEMI program, and some of the baseline numbers. And I, I had to go back and look at them. Prior to Dr. Lamel's coming, we were doing about 250 open heart procedures a year. Prior to us kicking off the construction project and him transitioning on to Texas Heart, we were at over a thousand. Wow. He was he was performing 800 open heart procedures on his own on, a, on an annual basis. So when you That's look at it, and, and you talked about it, the highest reimbursing departments in organization, right. cardiac surgery. So think about adding 600 annual new open heart procedures a year and the net revenue produced from a single surgeon. Yeah. Luckily for Dr. Ramellis, he had some really good partners, Dr. Roy Williams. Between him and uh, Mark Deluski over at Baptist, they flip-flopped between yeah. the top volume robotic surgeons. Well, I had been around... And I'd worked a lot in cardiac mm-hmm. in building these rooms as well and helping shape and design them. This is for Dr. Lamellis. I mean, a lot of people are chasing his tail. They're like, how does Dr. Lamellis do it? And I'm like, well, I can't talk about that. Yeah. 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 You, you know, I, I think when you talk about the overall planning, it is very unique in trying to understand how we would design ORs, but you have to understand his procedure, right? Yeah. When he is doing all of the entire procedure through a head cam. So when you think about a traditional OR or a procedure, right? Even a laparoscopic procedure prior to him using a head cam, he was the only person in the room who knew where he was at, at every phase of the open heart procedure. If he's removing a valve or if he's doing a cabbage, right? Adding in the technology, right? Technology allows for greater things. Yeah. And, you know, we introduced the head cam for him. And now what we would do is, and I think you were around at the time, right? We had hard wires run to 16 inch monitors on the wall so that everybody- All external. Right. All all (laughs) external cabling. Um, You know, I I give the man credit. He has has a patience of a saint. You know, sometimes he'd walk into the OR and there's probably more cables on the floor than anything else. Uh, So we really went through the learning curve of understanding what we didn't want. Right. And when- I interviewed him about, and we, we sat down and had many conversations, but when I interviewed him, I said, what do you want the ORs to look like? And he goes, to be honest with you, I want to come in and not see anything on the floor. I want to see a very clean space. And what I want to be able to have is on the wall that most of the visitors are facing and perfusion is facing a bank of monitors. And on the wall that I'm looking at, the only thing I need to see is my TEE image. 
And he goes, that allows me as a surgeon to understand where I'm at, but it allows everybody else to see each phase of the procedure. Mm. Think about that for a second. What you just said, he's more concerned, well, not outside of the patient, but he's more concerned with everyone else learning. Right. And just making sure he's satisfied. Amazing. I, I, I say to anyone who has a chance to come in and visit through the cardiac symposium programs, and we still do the programs now at University of Miami, they should, and they should take advantage because he is one of the few people that can actually narrate his entire procedure while he's doing it to allow everybody to understand the complexity and every phase of the procedure. And so when we look at what he was trying to do is he wants to allow everybody in the room for patient safety to understand where he's at anesthesia, perfusion, the nurse circulator, and the scrub techs on the field. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, his team is so dynamic. I mean, he went through and hand selected some of the smartest people. And oftentimes it is a great symphony when you watch what goes on in his OR. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, he rarely has to ask for anything. He has uh, one of his surgical assistants, Marcos, who immigrated over from Cuba as well. And, you know, Marcos has been with him for probably, I'd say over 20 plus years. That's a great word. He just used it put that together because anyone who's seen a great band play they can just jam and know where they're gonna go without even having to talk just by the look looks effortless right yeah 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 that's amazing and, and, and it's impressive and so we look at that or and we had hard boxes up and you know hard monitors cabling and everything else mm -hmm. and then and, and to try to see where he wanted to go and at the time a lot of companies were coming and telling us, well, we can do it. We can do it. And yeah, I, I mean, yeah. I, I researched, Scott, I think you've been part of it. So I, I went through every different company that was out there. And, I'm, and the name escapes me right now on the on the one tech company who I thought should have really blown up because they were- ImageStream? ImageStream. Yeah. I, I, I'm so- They got acquired. They did. Yeah. I'm, I'm I love so disappointed. Actually, I don't know if you know, but remember John Marilla before yeah. he retired? John's an amazing human. He retired. The next day he stopped here. Mm-hmm. That conversation, we just purged yeah. and started to going back and forth. Uh, a lot of it was about Mount Sinai, mm -hmm. uh, just about where the tech was, where it's coming from, and from a perspective of someone who's in the field every day, working alongside all the different personalities inside the hospital. Mm -hmm. It was unbelievable. It's really, really good. Yeah, John is one of the great people in healthcare sales down here. A little bit later, I'll talk about the other guys um, that was with a competitive uh, company. But just to kind of frame it out, when you look at an open heart surgeon who is doing things that very few people in the nation are doing and also has a vision of what he wants for future state, right? Because he's developing instrumentation. He's right. also developing ideas on what people need to see within that space. Mm -hmm. Then that actually challenges everybody on the design process. In addition, we had um, another good guy, uh, Alan Kantowitz, Dr. Alan Kantowitz, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. neurosurgeon, yep. right? And I use these two because they're they're the most challenging, right? Dr. Lamellis, I could walk down the hallway with him while he's rounding and he's- I told you I didn't need my questions, man, because you're rolling right there <laughs> <laughs> to go right down the line man it's awesome uh, well you know it, it's a study it, it, I, I studied this subject right I, i've worked with the man for for long enough to kind of understand it but we'd walk down the hallway and he'd he would be in the middle of talking to me about some type of technology that he wants to introduce i think you saw it right we had macbooks um out there yeah we were, yeah we were recording on our own devices um we weren't even using the striker gear because it wasn't up to speed at that but point. that's a compliment back to you i, I know you were humble in the beginning saying it wasn't a lot it was a lot of other people at least for the planning section of this, but the vision. This is where you come into play. You are really up on technology. It's a nerd passion project of yours at yeah. all times. If a physician comes to you and says, I want to do 
acts. I don't know how to do it. You're already thinking of how to how to tie this together. That's how your brain's wired and fitting everything together. And that's where the magic happened. Because one of the questions here, I said, the involvement of all parties, like you already naturally jumped to that question. You have two leading physicians, different different Slides. disciplines, right. right? Then you have administration. Then you have construction. Then you have the clinical folks who are working the day-to-day in and outside of the ORs or the emergency or the ICU, wherever department they're working in. Mm-hmm. And then you have to orchestrate that and play your own set of music. So let's step back. And, yeah. and, and instead of talking about planning, we could kind of talk about my role and then you'll see why, right? Yeah, sure. I was actually at dinner last Friday with Dr. Lamellis and we were talking about, you know, earlier in our careers and everything else. And, you know, he has asked me about my Navy days and then post Navy, you know, working out in San Diego. And, and I said, yeah, you know, I've been a cardiac scrub tech working with Dr. Christopher Ilya and, you know, that open heart team. And he's like, I, I, I forgot that. I forgot. Yeah. And I said, you know, and that was I, the beginnings. right. Anesthesia and other things um, throughout my career and taking a supply chain role really was the leadership role that I, I enjoy, but it really is something that I think a lot of uh, supply chain teams across the U.S., as specifically in healthcare, really need to adopt. And I'm not saying that the supply chain leader needs to, ha- needs to be a clinician, but definitely need to have clinicians on their team mm. because traditionally supply chain reports up to the CFO. Right. And as you know me, right, I'm a, I'm a very finance focused guy. Yeah. Yeah. The bottom line is, is really one of my main focuses hitting top line revenue, but making sure that we maximize profitability is, is key, especially mm-hmm. in a nonprofit that right. Mount Sinai operates at a Medicare cost structure. So the things that we're balancing from the overall clinical planning around all the clinical areas and the specifically the equipment and technology were we had a fixed budget. We had some really good partners uh, mm-hmm. that helped us. You worked with them as well. Uh, Mitchell Planning, Alexander, and I'm going to forget her. Chop her name. It's like Fregoros. Oh, what yeah. Hold on. Give me a second. Yeah. I'll, uh, I'll find it because I don't want to do that to her because yeah. she didn't. She really did do a great job. She she did. Um, you know, at the onset of the project, one of my good friends, uh, Ben Riestra, was working for Mitchell Planning. He transitioned back to UM and um, became uh, Lenar's senior leader over there for the ambulatory area and Lennar just won uh, some Gallup. Figaris. Yeah. Figaris. Yes. Yeah. And when he transitioned, Alexandra took over and she did an amazing job at keeping us really well organized on what we were doing. But the planning part really means that we had to really engage our physicians. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes just in supply chain alone, there's physician preference and then sometimes the loud physician gets what they want. Yeah, yeah. Um, but really, when you engage them, it's really now the balance of what do you want? Let us go out and see what's out there mm-hmm. and and come back and give you options. And then let's select what's going to be cost effective and future state. How do you navigate that discussion, though? There is a prelude to that. That's you know, say, okay, here's how we balance it. Because the EU, for example, they have a lot of technology mm-hmm. that's been released well before it hits the states. Right. These guys are international. It's just like the global economy now. So they they know what's out there as far as technology. So how do you kind of prelude those conversations and kind of, I want to say control, but you're, it's a cost control thing at the same time. Right. And to make sure that it can integrate, there's UL, there's FD, there's a lot of things in play. How do you do that? Alex Mendez, right, the CFO. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that he was responsible for was physician recruitment. 
what he ended up doing, it really talks about establishing the relationship and the trust that you brought up earlier. What he ended up doing was saying, Nate, I want you to help us with physician recruitment. So he would fly me out when we were selecting specific surgeons and I would observe their surgical procedure, but also we'd have the time to really have, uh, you know, a real clinical technology discussion prior to them even coming aboard. Mm. So then we start managing expectations. And you did it on the forefront. Yeah, we started yeah. right at the beginning. And then what ends Smart. up happening is I help with the onboarding process of all those physicians. Every piece of instrumentation, equipment, supply, and or vendor requests came through my department. And we're in constant engagement until they're completely onboarded. But then that's not where the conversation stops, right? Every month or every quarter, we would either do MORs, monthly operational reviews, mm-hmm. or we do a QBR, uh, quarterly business review, to really kind of just talk about the service line and how well they were doing. And that allows us to kind of just manage expectations. Sometimes people do think they're doing a great job, but when you show them the data and physicians are data, heavy, yeah, right? they, yeah. you know, they, they want to see the data and the data doesn't lie, man. Right. Um, <laughs> and why do you have more surgical site infections than this guy? <laughs> right. Well, I was trained. I was right. trained, right? Uh, I was trained by Dr. Lamellis going all the way back to Baptist. He would ask me, how much does it cost for me to do my procedure? I, I want to know. And so when he finally came over to Mount Sinai, I would meet with him every month and I would show him, here's how much it costs to do a cabbage. Here's how much it costs to do an AVR, MVR. Oftentimes he would assist in a lot of our negotiations with the suppliers, although they are in the room with them every day. And, and you, you've been on the sales side. It's yeah. a, it, from a supply chain and a healthcare administrator perspective. It's a tough relationship and to actually forge and tough to break. Right. Because you have a sales rep who's in the OR with that position eight hours a day. Oftentimes, six hours, yep. depending on the specialty. Especially if it's like an Edwards type, which right. is very heavy in the cardiac space. A hundred percent. Edwards, Medtronic, uh, Levanova now. And then the sales reps there, oftentimes they have their narrative, right? And it's obviously cost focused and Wall Street driven, shareholder uh, value. And so how do we get in there and really kind of balance out that conversation? It would getting into having real conversations. And instead of being at conflict with the reps, we would sit there and have a real dialogue around, okay, this is a technology that we want. How much does it cost? Why? Now, here's what we want to do. You currently don't have it. Okay. We'll sign NDAs, but you know, we either want to be an alpha site, beta site. Yeah. We want to help in the development of that so that we'll be obviously the recipient and, and benefit from it. And that really starts talking about all the way through concept and utilization mm-hmm. and, and the improvement really comes down to patient. patient How long safety. did that process take? How long before do you start to get to that end result? You think? So the surgical tower project was a three and a half year project. And I brought some metrics because yeah, uh, there, there's some interesting things that first, you know, half a year is constant discussions and managing expectations. Yeah. Everybody had their own concept of what it should be. I talk about Dr. Kantowitz, um, same thing. He's cost conscious, but this guy's brain is like someone I've, I've never seen. He's way out there when mm-hmm. it comes down to understanding the yeah. different technologies, not in healthcare, but technologies outside of healthcare that can be applied to a healthcare setting. And so he really forced us and challenged us saying, I want to be able to have dual lens microscopes with the images displayed on all the monitors around the room. So that everybody from the EEG tech all the way over to the circulator and the scrub tech can all see where I'm at within the procedure. 
anesthesia has, has their own imaging. And so in a neuro procedure, those monitors have to be in different places. Yeah. And then when you jump even further ahead, general surgery, we talked, you know, we talked about robotics, right? I think you're hearing a common theme. I have a lot of really good mentors and friends who help guide. Rick Estape, let me tell you about Rick, right? Well, the word that, that comes out real quick, we talked about in the really beginning, was trust. You right. establish trust from day one. Just build yeah. good, solid relationships. I know with physicians, you can't mislead them mm -hmm. um, because once you do, you lose credibility. Yeah. I give the example of Rick Estape, who's over at, uh, he was at Baptist Health when Dr. Lamellis and I were over there. He adopted the robotic technology. We had it sitting dormant over at Baptist. He took it at South Miami, blew it up, and he's one of the top GYOs out there that does it robotically. And I started talking to him about, okay, we want to design this OR suite for robotics. You know, what will we need? And he started giving all kinds of lessons learned, mm -hmm. you know, because he had bounced around different hospitals, South Miami, Baptist, uh, Kendall Regional, all these different hospitals. He's seen different setups. He would give us, you know, tips and tricks. Make sure you don't do this, but you should do this. Make sure you, you know, you run that you might need a laser. So make sure there's 220 in the room. And so we started really pulling in all these concepts. Then as we did that, the chief of anesthesia, Dr. Howard Whittles is, uh, really, I, 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 I him. he's yeah, such a good guy. Great guy. Great yeah. guy. And he really controls the OR there. Because of his, his long-term relationships and, it, you know, everybody has a tremendous amount of respect for him. He was instrumental in bringing all the different surgeons. And, I, and I'm talking about the surgeons specifically because it is a surgical tower, yeah. the skull neck surgical tower. He brought all the physicians to the table and kept the cadence. And although he's not participating in a lot of the dialogue around the technologies, he's allowing us to establish that forum for this debate. And mm -hmm. we, you know, we would bring the results of RFPs and then say, okay, here's the limitations that we see in the technology. Here's what you guys are asking us to do. And that half a year at the beginning was really instrumental in the physician engagement. Everyone was really excited. So for the physicians and we had a, a mixture of different physicians as far as tenure, you had, you know, during the initial planning phases, we had Dr. Lamellis, we had Dr. Kantowitz, but then look at Dr. Whittles who had been there for 20 plus years. He had his own support team too that he relied on for Absolutely. more secondary input. Right. Yeah. Right. And then Dr. Unger, whose family had been at Mount Sinai for years. So you had, um, physicians with long tenure, shorter tenure, physicians who were probably going to retire before the tower was actually up and running, physicians who were going to transition in and other physicians, different phases of their contract period. So we were trying to kind of manage all those ideas, but also make sure that we didn't design ORs that were single functional. Sure. And that's part of what we had to do. So we took a lot of that information and you guys on the striker side, we decided to partner with you for our integrated ORs. You guys did a good job as well, right? When we look at, thanks, you know, <laughs> we tried. <laughs> no, no. I, I mean, from a partnering perspective, yeah. having us all go out to Texas to really understand where the technology was coming or starting and going to mm -hmm. was key because some of those, a lot of those ideas, not some, a lot of the ideas were shaped there at that meeting because it allowed us to understand, Hey, we might be designing for current technology, but not future state. Sure. Yeah. So that's always the catch. And that's why I posed that earlier sidebar question about the technology with the slow adoption rate. Right. That bleeds into that conversation more than most people would like to recognize, yeah. okay, yeah, you're, you have a present task at hand, 
but you need to make sure that in five years, you're not rebuilding what you just did and that probably is still not even paid off yet. Right. Right. So, at the so, same time. so two things come to mind, right? Um, the first one is when we are sitting there really kind of trying to focus on future state, Dr. Kantowitz from a neuro side, he was really thinking about, and I think you were on the Boca project. Um, yeah. And it was with the MRI. Yeah. Yeah. Interoperative MRI. You had to have an interoperative MRI if you're going to have any type of neural program when we were in the design phase. And so we didn't know where we wanted that to go because so the tough rooms. interoperative CT and portable CT, mm-hmm. right? Because he had been working on projects with different companies on that. So he hadn't made a decision on what we wanted to do. So administratively, we went up to the leadership team and said, we're going to have to shell a space. Now think about this. This is your top revenue producing real estate within a hospital. We're saying, let's shell a space so that if we decide we're going to put in an intraoperative MRI, we have the space available. We made it where you could bring an outpatient or an inpatient up to the floor, have their MRI and taken down. So you actually can use it dual function mm-hmm. for intraoperative and or in or outpatient. And they agreed. They, they said, absolutely. So we shelled a very large space and I don't have the actual square footage, but you could put two ORs in there for future. The state. minimum standards for those, at least according to the AIA is 1400 square feet right. with a garage. That's a clinical space. So you can imagine we made it where in the construction team. So Matt reported to a, a really, really dynamic person. His name is Ben Davis. Mm. If you want to really get into the details from the garage and everything, the precast and all that stuff, Ben and Matt would be a great episode because mm. these guys know that business really well. And, and Ben, he, he was over facilities, construction, PMO. <laughs> he they, did they, so much. Yeah. That's poor guy. We're talking about the surgical tower, but you also have to remember simultaneously, we were also standing up a freestanding ED in mm-hmm. Hialeah. And by the way, let's not forget about the new garage that you just kind of remodified and built. I don't know what it is with new towers and new projects like this, but every time that happens, the garage has to be fixed first. Right. Well, you know, we're on Miami Beach, expensive real estate. Yeah. Um, the idea of having all of this disparate parking and everything else um, right up against the bay. That makes sense. I didn't, I didn't yeah. think of it that way. All the parking that you lost in the back for construction material. Correct. Yeah. And, and so the garage specifically for the staff and we left the parking and the valet service, you know, specifically for the patient experience. Mm. So the other thing, and this is one of the things that I really wish we would have done. You introduced me to a company and we were out in Denver and I don't know if you even remember it. Um, ben Riestra and you introduced me to a company that does the stainless steel panels. Oh, the modular buildings. Yeah. I wish we would have done it. I wish we would have done it. Lesson learned, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, when you look towards the end, right? And when we're going through doing punch out and, oh, wait, we need a monitor up here for whatever it was yeah. at the time. That's actually now... When you look at that concept of modular, mm-hmm. there's modular bathrooms, there's modular ICUs that are coming into to play now. They are happening inside the OR at the moment, but the problem with the technology is that it, there is nothing outfitted together. So nothing's pre-engineered, prefabricated together as a system. Mm-hmm. So there's still vendor silos, if you will. I think that's where some of these companies need a partner with the construction companies because mm-hmm. if you and Ben Riestra didn't introduce it to me, it would have never you been a concept, about it. right? Yeah. And, and we didn't know that it was out there. And, you know, we had done tons of site visits to different organizations around the country to be able to see their new construction yep. and 
other construction that allowed for different workflow. For example, we went to Brigham Women's. I think they had like 15 ORs underneath the street. Yeah, you know, it, it's amazing. Plus PET scan, CT yeah. rooms and everything else. 70 uh, MRIs. And the I nice mean, thing amazing. about that part of what you were talking about with the modular panels and the modular ceilings now, which are there, I called the get out of jail free card. How many times did we have an add-on? Right. We didn't miss it. It was just an add-on. And if the sheet rocks up, now you're cutting it. And Shane, the OR down for yeah, at least three days. Minimum. minimum. Right, right. And, and then you have to run the car, everything. It's, it's a, I would say it's at least six to 10 days yeah. versus a day. Right, right. Done. And I wish we would have done it. We didn't. But it was also late, too, in the process. I mean, it was. I mean, it was an added cost that wasn't built in. It wasn't budgeted. Right? You know, up, et cetera. Your point of healthcare is very slow to adopt technology. Mm-hmm. I, I want to go back to the interoperative MRI from a planning perspective, right? Unlike other industries where things are a little bit more cost effective, everything in healthcare, medical grade, and I, I, I'm still trying to understand really if there is such a term, <laughs> right? Um, you know, um, listen, just tell UL, right? Just tell UL, look, I have a letter that says if it's not within six feet, you don't right. need medical grade. <laughs> Done. You save 10 grand just like that. Right. But, but, but it's the, it's the challenge, right? And right. so everybody slaps medical grade on. And now I, I remember, you know, the first time that I bought flat panel, you know, for uh, mantras for the OR, they're $10,000 a piece. Gosh, that'd be such it's a crazy, not even a great concept. That That's such a great idea. If a company would go out there and listen, because there's a way of doing medical grade without having to do medical grade. And all it is, is fiber. For that's the interference, it. right? Right. That's yeah. it. Yeah. But imagine if <clears throat> we moved at uh, light speed instead of a snail's pace in healthcare right. on the adoption of technology, we would have installed that MRI. Mm-hmm. And now- I guarantee they'll probably never use interoperative MRI there. Well, we were talking about John in an earlier mm-hmm. podcast. John in that podcast talked about the Orbi yeah. one and MRI in your phone. And now look at Apple just uh, release, right? Yeah. Magnets everywhere. Magnets, LiDAR, yeah. the yeah. whole nine yards. It's it. coming in, folks. I'm telling you, our phones are, I'd, I'd say, they're like maybe four years away at max of some kind of imaging diagnostic built into your phone, specialty phone, of course. But- I think it's that. If you want to nerd out for about 30 seconds, we can. My, sure. My, my, my kids don't think that we're going to have a form factor of a phone any longer. In Samsung said that too when they released yeah. the S20. I don't know what they mean. I don't know. I just don't know yet. I mean, I try yeah. to look at all the different aspects of what they're trying to do. Wearables is a huge push, obviously. Samsung's going to have the first, uh, actually, they do have the first patent for a blood pressure cuff built into the wristband. We have... Ox- oxygen also, readers yeah. now yeah. in the Apple Watch, so it's common. By the way, back in '95, I was, you know, we were we were trying to figure out a non-invasive way to do ABGs, right? Uh-huh. Um, because yeah. intraoperatively, you know, as soon as you wrap the arms in a cardiac procedure, you know, it dampens out the waveform, so you have to kind of loosen it. They put these shields and all kinds of stuff. And there was a company that was putting a little pressure line there to try to do it. I don't know if it ever took off because I haven't seen it in commonplace, but I don't like the foldable phones. I don't yeah. like that. I don't see that as something. I think I, the rollable phones are cool though. You've yeah. seen those, the yeah. LG ones are you just, right. that's pretty cool. That's pretty yeah. slick. So I, I don't know if the form factor of a, of a phone will be there, but yes, the tech is definitely there. Mm. And then when you try to figure out what you should adopt in healthcare to be able to treat the patient and safe way at, yeah. you know, using the best technology for diagnostics and, and procedures, it, it comes at a cost. And so that is part of the challenge when we're trying to figure out, okay, how far in the future do we go from a planning perspective? 
also, will you be able to readapt that OR for these technologies that come out? Mm. Luckily, I will say that when Striker came out with, uh, you guys had the Wi-Fi monitor, right? It was a wireless. Oh, yeah, one of them. Yep. Yeah. And that was a cool concept. Is wireless-ish, you yeah. know? It, it was great, and it worked wonderful until, and this is what, there has to be a better cross-coordination between or medical standards. So I know right now ISO 8001, which is a new medical uh, safety standard when it comes to medical device uh, connectivity, mm-hmm. there's a protocol being established because of HIPAA code and violations that they don't want to uh, get it broken. So it, right now it's pretty easy that if you're sub Windows 10, you're going to get hacked. Right. Period. End of story. And and, and every company is telling us by calendar year and from a cybersecurity perspective, you have to upgrade to Windows 10 or they're they're not supporting the equipment any longer. And so just on that notion alone, these companies have to take a higher responsibility, one, of data sharing and two, working together. That monitor, going back to that, worked great until one of the Bovi companies screwed it up and went on five gigahertz channel and all of a sudden started interfering with this great piece of tech stopped working so well. And then people saying, well, this now sucks and it doesn't suck. Something else was introduced that caused interference. Right. Right. Yeah. But that's just the way things work. And that's what it goes back to someone in your position saying, like, how do you balance that? It's hard because now you're dealing with all of a sudden this new brand new issue. And you obviously bought that piece of equipment because it's going to serve the patient and the physician who's doing the procedure well, but it's causing a bunch of shit. Right. That you didn't even plan for. Yeah. A lot of unforeseen (laughs) circumstances come up during, uh, you know, the actual implementation versus the planning phase. People who are not as tech savvy as you in your role and and how you kind of orchestrate everything that you do. I don't know how they function. And no wonder why they get in trouble because they're not living. They're not assuming that responsibility of how am I caring for this patient who you're not going to see them. But you have them in mind sight. You have them in your third eye saying, okay, how is someone going to be affected by that? Yeah. And that's the difference. I I will say that I've been blessed to work for some pretty great organizations. And, you know, if they're built around a culture of patient safety, that's top of mind for everyone. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and and that's great. Uh, Being over at University of Miami, it is absolutely amazing. Everybody is 100% focused and dedicated on patient safety. And we're in the process right now of designing, you know, new ORs as well for the U Health Tower. And there's no better person. (laughs) (laughs) You've done it already. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm working with uh, Alexandra on that project as well. Yeah. I mean, so this, this is probably second nature. You probably talk more about personal things and personal life or what you had for lunch the next day versus worrying about the project. And it's like, yeah, yeah. Right. I think that when you, and everybody that I know who's had the privilege of walking through the Mount Sinai ORs, they, they were able to see what we did there mm-hmm. and, and understand that it can be done a little bit different. And some people might not like it, right? But right. It, it can be done different. When you look at the hybrid suite that you mentioned earlier, you talk about planning for future state. I still show that picture to everybody. It, and when you show it to them, you got to point out to them that we partnered with Siemens George Lopez at Siemens, mm-hmm. I mean, that's the other guy I was referencing besides John. Like this guy's the godfather of, you know, healthcare sales, forever. right? Yeah. You know, he gets it. And what he does is he takes the approach that you took with me, some of our other business partners. He, he just sits down and says, okay, what do you want to do? Right. 
oftentimes what I found in some of these conversations, the, you know, physicians would tell me, this is why we need to buy this product. Mm -hmm. And George took a different perspective. You want to build a hybrid suite. Okay. What type of cases do you want to do? Right. So there was a, an overall intellectual planning perspective there. And then he went back to Siemens and Siemens came back in and said, Hey, sign all these NDAs. We want to show you something. You know, we had actually done a tour over to University of Miami because they had the prior version of what the Zigo. Yeah. They had the Zigo. Yeah. So we ended up purchasing the Fino. Mm -hmm. But when you purchase the Fino, everything was, changed. Uh, similar tech, new tech, right? But the infrastructure, everything changed. Everything changed. Yeah. The, the configuration of the room, the placement of the room, mm -hmm. or the pheno within the room, and, and you introduced me to McKay, right? Because your background with the tables and everything else, yeah. You know, part of our challenge there was we have this huge piece of equipment that, yes, it can come out on a robotic arm and you know do the full three hundred and sixty around the table and everything else, but. That Fino is about, and I'm just going to put a number out there, not what I pay for it, but it's about $2 million price tag, yeah, right? Yeah, easy. And it can no kill way. you in less than a New York second. Right. And, and three and a half years prior, <laughs> right. when we were doing the planning phase, there's no way we can even foresee that they would have a Fino, mm -hmm. right? The Zigo was kind of like that, you know, it, it was there and the cables from the ceiling. And so we planned for two hybrid suites, right? Because we do think, and I, I believe this, that everything is at transitioning to minimally invasive where it's yeah. safe and effective for, mm -hmm. for patient care. So we, did all the infrastructure for a potential Fino and or something else with that Siemens partnership in the second hybrid suite, but in the main hybrid suite, even in the planning phase. Okay. When do you think everything will transition from a vascular perspective? Mount Sinai did a great job and they have a tremendous vascular surgeon over there named Michael Ayad. Mm -hmm. You know, Dr. Savina is still there and Michael came on and he's a vascular surgeon and an interventional physician. So you look at someone with that dual skill set, some days he's going to do interventional procedures. And I came to you and I said, Scott, I know you have this background, right? Help. And you introduce us to the McKay table. Now, Siemens, because of what they knew at the time, they were installing the fixed tables, right? So we went in and got the McKay table. And now what we ended up having is a radiolucent tabletop for interventional procedures. Then we, within six minutes, you can swap it out. We hired uh, Marjorie Stickles, who's the VP of surgical services over there at Mount Sinai. Now she had just installed it up at uh, University of Maryland. She says, you can swap it out in six minutes. So we actually timed it. Yeah. Right. We went to that site visit. We, we timed it. Okay. Let's see it. Done. And they were able to swap it out yeah. in six minutes. And now you have a regular OR. So we were. But what you did with the infrastructure and the ceiling. Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. No one wants to hear the humming of medical equipment. First thing you do is you try to make sure that there's nothing going to interrupt anything. You don't have the rails like a traditional cath lab. And you keep it very clean, mm. you know, going back to Dr. Lamellis's idea, right? Clean ORs, you walk in and there's tons of space. People can see one another, the communication, the education, the training, that all was at forefront in the overall design. Yeah. And then all the integration equipment, we put out in an alcove outside of each OR. So you didn't hear the humming, the nurse's uh, oh, documentation gosh, what's, station. What's that term? I'm, I'm drawing a blank to it. It was uh, something like zero negative, zero balance, where there was zero heat mm -hmm. yeah. production, something like that inside the OR, right? Get, get, get Matt that. Bernard on. Yeah. He'll, 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 he'll tell you all that. <laughs> I find that's happening a lot. Everything's transitioning right now to 4K, which is funny because 4K has been around, it seems like forever. I just had a conversation with a company. I'm not going <laughs> to name names. And, and they were bringing up 4K. And I go, 4K? 
you jumped on board. Where's, where's 8K? Right. Right. You know, I can buy a TV right now, a 65 inch TV at 8K, you mm-hmm. know? And so the imaging and, you know, I, I can't see that, that great. I don't know, you yeah. know, but 8K is commercially available. And at the time, three and a half years prior, 4K, 1080p. Right. Right. Remember that? It was, yep. it was 1080p. That was, if you had 1080p, you were top of the line HD. I remember when I was working in New York City and I did my first Zego room with Siemens. I was over at NYU and they were looking at the large monitor and the monitor bank. And I was like, oh, okay. And first time touching it. Remember Alan Katz, that name, yeah. integration? He mm-hmm. did the integration over there with VTS. And I was like, 8K. What's 8K? What does that mean? This yeah. is early, early on in my career. He's like, all right, so think of this size TV. And they magnify yeah. a time. I was like, oh my gosh. The, re- Without the resolution. Yeah. 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 And you think it's all about the contrast. And then I started paying attention to those particular attributes of what made that product what it was. Now, when you bring it in, it's like, well, that AK has been around for a while. They've really perfected the blacks. Nothing's really changed too much with the tech. Now, everyone else is trying to absorb it and adopt it. The bigger issue I know, and we talked about this a lot, was just the bandwidth. Right. I know this that right now, Mount Sinai, unless you've done it over at UM, is the only tower that has a Cat 7 100 gigabit line. We built haven't into done it, it at UM yet. Um, we're still in the planning phases. I've never seen um, that big of a cable, but so, so, I can see why. So you have to marry the expertise of the subject matter experts. Mm-hmm. So there's this guy named Ken Zelnick, who was our IT director. He's had him. Oh my yeah. gosh. Whip. Smart Super whip. smart guy. We were running separate ISDN lines. And for anybody who doesn't know, we would broadcast to uh, bi-directional audio and video to conferences all around the globe. I think you were there at three in the morning when we were trying to broadcast yeah. to Australia and they got some cloud cover and we lost the signal, right? Yep. Because everything's distributed through satellites over there. We were running all these separate ISDN lines, four or five ISDN lines. So he said, hey, why are we doing that? Let's run a PRI line. And I, I don't even know what PRI is still to, that, to this day. I don't know what it stands for, but I do know it's 23 separate ISDN lines, right? Wow. And so when we, we look at it, Isn't that many, Jeez. I think that's what he, he told me, 23. And so we established that. And part of when we, we were having that conversation around how should we build these integration ORs, right? Because we didn't want all that humming and everything else. And so remember I asked you, I said, hey, Scott, can we send this up? Remember, we had MEP on the third floor mm-hmm. above the ORs. Yep. So I said, can we throw this up there? And, you're, and you start talking about the fiber runs, right? And, and people don't know that. So all of a sudden, we would have lost image quality if we would have thrown up on the third floor. So we right. had to have them proximal so that you had right amount of fiber run so you can make sure the integrity of the video the, quality. The signal, right? Yeah. And then not only that too, that I remember at that time when I was nervous about was what happens when they go to 4K? Right. If they're going over 75 feet, which was the minimum standard that everyone in the, in the market tries to adhere to, mm-hmm. once you go past that, you start losing that, that push. Right. And I was like, I don't know if that's going to work because 4K is a pretty substantial signal at that length. And then Rachel, Actually, now going back and reminiscing about this whole thing, we had a lot of smart people with us, right? Uh, She was like, no, don't. Here's why. And she actually went through the resistance Mm -hmm. of 75 versus 200. And I was like, oh, shit, do not do that. I just like to see the math on that alone, (laughs) right? (laughs) It was crazy. So when I started, when you go from zero to 70 feet, you have about 80% congruency Mm -hmm. of the signal strength. Once you break 75, it literally goes down by 1% almost by every foot, additional foot that you go down, which is... 10 lines, 10 resolution lines or something like that. So you're back at 1K pretty quickly. Yeah, you're looking at snow almost yeah. by the time you're done. Yeah. Now that's magnified over that, that many rooms too. 
not not to geek out on it, but I was like, don't do it. <laughs> well, and, 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 and you think about some of the ideas that we talked about with the hybrid suite, right? Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you have these great images and the quality of the images, you know, there. And when you looked at our traditional cath labs that we had, we had all these small monitors. They're about 23 inches. Yeah, put together yeah. on a single panel, but they're kind yep. of glued in there. You recommended we throw the 70 inch up there and then allow the technology to drive the to drag and drop. of, yeah. yeah. So picture in picture and things like that. I think we were able to benefit from the collective knowledge of everyone in the group, but really having that idea and concept of what you want to do. There's a couple of things that I'm kind of disappointed in the project where Dr. Lamos had transitioned before he is able to use and mm-hmm. get, to get to see everything yeah. that he helped. You Has know, he ever make. been invited back to go look at him? I don't know. I, That'd I don't be know. cool. That'd it, be nice. Yeah. That'd be a nice gesture. Yeah. Yeah. I'm probably going to say something that is, uh, <laughs> be, I'd be remiss if I got off without saying something controversial, but I do sure. think it should be the Dr. Joseph Lamellis surgical tower. He really did help establish cardiac program, reestablish the cardiac program yeah. there. And um, look, it, I mean, I've been down here long enough. He is, he's the guy. He's it. He's it. Yeah. Everyone else is secondary. Not that they're bad. I mean, look, you're taking one of the most invasive, traumatizing type of procedures that you need to do. You're cracking someone's sternum and he's avoiding that completely. Right. It's almost, uh, I, I don't know how to put this this way, but. The total knee, they tried to, but they didn't accomplish it. What they tried to do the minimally invasive surgical knee replacement mm-hmm. knee didn't really work. It, it's a- that concept. Hip. Anterior hip. Yeah. It's, it's so, close. yeah. So, it's a, it, yeah. that's a great analogy. So, yeah. you, you're taking a posterior lateral hip replacement and now you're doing it with a DAA, it's direct anterior approach. So, you're going from a, I don't know, three to five week post op recovery to three days. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> like at, that. At, out of PT and everything, you're right. a couple weeks out playing yeah. golf again. Yeah, you actually yeah. have to calm the patient down, not to do too much because you want to make sure the cement seals and adheres where it needs to. You also look at minimally invasive spine, right? Yeah. You, know, you, you go through and you, you you know you go and do most of the operation either through a lateral position or mm-hmm. through the tubes, and I, I do think that's really where it's going, right? And being able to introduce that kind of technology, everything's getting smaller, and as technology adapts to what we really need in healthcare. I don't even know if the operative spaces need to be that large. I don't know. I don't know how to think about that because when I put everything together right now, so the architectural minimum standards are for an orthopedic suite, 625 square feet or 650. It's one of the two. For an interventional lab, the minimum is 900 square feet, which I don't know who came up with that number, but realistically way too too small. small. (laughs) Too small. I mean, but that's, would it work? Yep. Will you hate it? Absolutely. Yes Yes and yes. (laughs) Right? So I know NYU did this. Mm -hmm. Every room was an interventional room as well as the general suite. So it was the hybrid suite that you built with Siemens and the Magnus Table from McKay. Every room, not as large, but it was 1,100 square feet. And they had the central control rooms between the two, mm-hmm. just like you did. And they had that in the entire row. Right. That's, that's where I that's think impressive. the Yeah, that's where I think, yeah. which, which, and that's the, the Tisch building. I, we didn't win the bid, mm-hmm. but when I was up there, we were the, the pocket placement until they switched over. And Stryker actually won that as well. Oh, wow. They did a good job with it. Well, if there's anybody from NYU listening, uh, I'd love to come up and see those uh, suites. Road trip. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go back to a question on involvement. You talked about the physicians, administration, the different director level people that were involved. And there's a large mix of party members that were there, right? Mm-hmm. What about environmental? What about the nurses? 
how do they play into this? Because sometimes they can be known as the bitch squad. Mm-hmm. But, this is the Joe Rogan of healthcare. Right. But, but, but at the same time. <laughs> Scott Burgess said that, not Nate Ewing. <laughs> <laughs> but when you go back to it, why is this there? And they ask a lot of questions. Right. Right. And justifiably so. And I know they have a voice at a certain time. They have to be part of the conversation. Yeah. How do you navigate that? So luckily for us, we really engaged from a supply chain perspective really early with nursing on what their needs were. Mm. When you look at it, uh, we ended up with 154 private suites, all water facing. So you had a bay view of every single suite. We brought the nurses in. And we need to make sure we have to add the link to that in the podcast and the oh, YouTube yeah. notes because those pictures are stunning. Well, actually part of the things, you know, unintended consequences the idea of the actual, I thought at first I thought you said length and it, because oh, no, that, that length, was the biggest yeah. complaint from the nursing staff after we went live was the length of what they were walking versus what they were used to in the, in the Oh yeah. Oh, we were yeah. built in pods, right? <laughs> and now they're walking, you know, that complaint, that complaint is on every brand new tower. Is it really? Yeah. Because how long it takes to get to OR1 to right. let's say central command. Right. And it's, well, well, yeah. Okay. I get it. That's why there's typically like pods or nurses stations mm-hmm. built in. So you don't have to keep traveling back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. I, our, our nursing uh, leadership team, they did a, a, a great job in, let, let's start off. Steve Sonnerich came into our first kickoff meeting and said, the expectation is that everybody comes together and works as a team and mm-hmm. everybody's voice is heard. It wasn't that anything was lost. And yeah, they have a ton of different opinions. Now, how do you filter out the noise, right? Right. Reduce the variance and then marry that to something that operationally is going to have a positive net impact. That's where the challenge is. And, you know, really point in those nurse leaders over the respective areas. If you go up there and look at the ICUs, the first thing when you get off the elevator, the families have a 180 degree view of the bay. Yeah. Nothing but water in a, in a portion of the city of Miami. Oh my gosh, it's, so, know, it's so beautiful. I, I've yeah. I've experienced it. It's so nice. Yeah. And then you transition in and there's a nurse's station, but it really looks like the deck from Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it's, you know, nonstop tech, just deep in their space labs. Norm Bassetti from Space Labs really did a great design where from the counter up, you don't see monitors. All the monitors are down where they can see it. Space Labs go back in the old days, you know, it used to be known as space trash, right? right? And I'm not trashing space labs, so don't anyone... No, they had their problems. But then they transitioned. Uh, Pat Klein joined the team. I hear that he's transitioned just recently, but they went from that traditional CRT, old clunky monitors to Mm -hmm. iPads. Their monitors look like it's an iPad, you know, form factor. Um, And that's absolutely amazing. And so when you get off and you, and you go to the nurse's station, right, there's bi-directional audio and video to buzz family members in. And then you walk into these suites and we had designed everything. Once we decided the most expensive part, right, was the integration piece. Once we decided Stryker was that our integration partner there, the halo effect within healthcare sales, right? Came in and I, I could talk for hours on healthcare sales and, and my opinions. Uh, but the division of you coming back, that's it. It's official. <laughs> <laughs> that's round two. But the med side really, because of your efforts and Eddie Messer's efforts, they really benefited. We went with their beds and overbed tables and everything yeah. else. But we also talked about device integration, right? Making sure that you had quick release. So the beds, they, there's breakaway doors, just like you have in the ED, in right. the trauma rooms, mm-hmm. up in the ICU. So you can roll an entire patient in, ventilators, IV pumps. And we had it in the design was coming directly off the elevator, 
because the elevators ended on the second floor. They ended right outside the cardiac and neuro suites. Mm. You take them up to the fourth floor, you come right out and they had the cardiac ICU, then the neuro and then medical ICU. Right. And so all the tech in there is made so that you can transition a patient in bed. You have a respiratory therapist and anesthesiologist. You have the circulating nurse giving report. You might have an SSA, you have the ICU nurse, right? And whoever's up there helping out and probably like a nurse manager or something else to just, you know, welcome that patient into the room and get them set up. But we timed it out where you can bring a patient from the OR and put them in the ICU within two minutes. It's pretty impressive. After all that. After all that. Yeah. Right. So, you know, device integration, all the vitals going directly into And the other thing too that you didn't mention yet, but it's really something pretty critical is that you break away doors and you had access to the head. So anytime if a patient was to crash, you had immediate access to the head and to the chest. Well, that goes back to what you'd asked, right? And I, I was just using that as an example, but it's the exact point that without the nursing input and what was important to them mm-hmm. when they're transferring a patient, right? First of all, in the past, they're transferring with these big, yeah. remember the Life Pack 12s? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. So you put that on the bed and you hit a bump, it falls off and you know, and you, they never had There's access to the head of the There's still a transfer bed. issue problem from equipment from imaging to wherever the patient right. is staying, what the both let's call it the ICU for now. Mm-hmm. It's still an issue because new towers, pretty easy. Transfer poles, et cetera. Right. The problem is in certain geographic areas of the country, uh, New York City particularly, I dealt with that issue where you had different buildings that weren't even level because they were built at different times and you had to take an elevator to go up six inches, <laughs> quite literally. And it just couldn't happen. And then you couldn't have a pitch greater than 10 degrees because equipment would fall off or it would tilt or it was too much weight. It was a mess. Oh, I, I can't even imagine. Yeah. yeah. The transition going from, and, and I don't want to use the word old, but the legacy building into, <laughs> into the new building, you, you really feel like you're going backwards in time or forwards in time. Yeah. I mean, you know, just the idea and seeing where if you do bring the voice of the nurses into the conversation, what you get is a much greater patient experience. Yeah. You right. know, you talked about EVS. Jacetta Harris is the EVS director over there, Mount Sinai. Um, and I will say that I had a very healthy appreciation for her mm-hmm. prior to this project. Post-project, I, I mean, she's untouchable. Really? Yeah. When you look at the size of the building, the amount of time that it took her to make sure that, that you know, because post-construction, you have to let the dust settle, mm-hmm. clean the entire floor, come back, do it again two days later. She did it in record time. Really? You walk that tower and it is spotless. Yeah. Now, the legacy building, when you go through Mount Sinai on, on the legacy side, that is spotless. There's nothing in the hallways, Hmm. you know, there's nothing on the floors. She does a great job at keeping it up. Part of the things that she did ask for was out in the loading dock, you know, make sure that we have separate areas for the dirty, the regular medical waste, the sharps, Mm -hmm. things like that, but put it off to the distal end of the building so that no one can see it. The trucks for the medical supplies can be put a little bit more proximal. That's a whole nother area we haven't talked about yet was the loading dock and how the in versus the out. You build a brand new loading dock at the same time in preparation for the new tower. Very smart. Two loading docks at this time. And at the time, it was frustrating because you're dealing with all you're trying to do is focus on your thing right. to get your stuff unboxed, get it into the hospital or whatever, whatever's happening at the time. But there's rules and regs, man. There's a reason why there's a process in place and it's tough. 
Anything there you want to talk about? Yeah, that relationship is close be- with supply chain because they're the ones checking everything coming in to make sure it's legitimate. Yeah. So uh, Malcolm Dems, you know Malcolm. Yeah. Right? He's been with me for 20 years. We had a, a minor- uh, Great seven, guy, by the way. Yeah. A, a, Super ama- friendly. Amazing. He's grown up in healthcare. He understands it. And he was uh, my director that I had over all of the, I'll say the logistics and delivery of supplies. Yep. Him and his team, they did an amazing job at trying to understand first, there's a security issue of making sure that the right trucks can get across. And, you know, Matt went back and forth with Malcolm on really trying to design the entrance for all the trucks. And then, you know, Matt, he's not just a construction guy. He's actually an architect by background. Right. So he's able to look at the floor plans and the drawings and say, wait, you need to modify this to be able to make sure that you can, how many trucks do you want, Malcolm? Okay. So he would go Mm -hmm. through with Malcolm and they would have that conversation. And really where the test was, Dave Watson, who works with Mitchell, who's Ross Barr now, um, you know, he came in and this guy is Mr. Logistics, right? He, he can get anything set up in a matter of seconds yeah. uh, for new construction. And the first thing he did was, wow, this loading dock is amazing. And they didn't have any problems bringing the new medical equipment in, getting it set up. Uh, you know, we had multiple elevators. So beds were going up on one, medical equipment were going on another. The overall design of the building helped allow that. But, you know, when we look at EVS, just said it was really managing all that workflow from, okay, now that the boxes are there, let's get them out, you know, compactors and everything else. Mm. It, it, was, it was pretty- Look at that team dynamic you just talked about between Matt being on construction, having underside of architectural, right. Malcolm and supply chain, EVS, the people on the loading dock, all just in harmony working together. And it really was. I mean, there was a- there is a significant amount on that loading dock any given day. Right. And what, what I'll say, you know, and we keep going back to it, a lot of very smart people who are passionate about the project, you even as a supplier, right? We're just as passionate as the staff mm-hmm. about, about what the end product was going to look like. And I think, you know, that engagement with everybody looking at the success of the building was really key to the overall success. You yeah. know, I think some of the challenges that came up would not have been easily addressed if everybody wasn't working. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's well said. When it comes to outside of the modular walls, Mm -hmm. if you could redo something or something that you didn't consider that you now have a chance to consider over at UM and and the development of those ORs over there, what would it be? Um, I know it can be a tricky question on that one because you don't want to go back and say, well, this is what we screwed up. At the time, may not have been there, may not have been an option for you. Yeah, you know. 100% 100% as a clinician by background and, and understanding what I think healthcare is about, right? And you know, you know, and I've had many debates sitting on my balcony and brickle drinking bourbon mm. about what healthcare is about, right? And you know, it should really be about staying healthy instead of preventative care versus reactive, yep. <laughs> right? Phillips has a guy, and, and I'm going to say guy because I can't remember his name, and Natalie Esquieto from Phillips. I'm going to have to ask her so that you can add it to the notes. And I can text her. Yeah. Yeah. Let's text her during this, and we can go back and edit. So she uh, introduced us at the time to a guy on their team, and he was all about patient experience. Remember, Phillips was all together at one point. Right. Phillips Hue lighting and mm-hmm. everything else. You know, And you send the link out, they're going to see some of that lighting within our MRI space and things like that. But they have a guy specifically around patient experience. The only issue was that we were a year and a half in when I met him. Mm-hmm. I had him come to the boardroom. He did an amazing <clears throat> presentation. And it really is, you start at the entrance or the parking lot, actually. That's what he said. You start at the parking lot and you put on this VR gear 
and you walk the space like you are the patient. And you design the hallways, you design everything wow. based around the patient's experience. Because at the end of the day, right, anything within the, I, I would say the form factor of the physical space can be adjusted through walls and things like that, but you design it around that patient's experience and how they're interpreting all these inputs that they're seeing. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's been a couple of books and movies about, you know, you, you, as a, a clinician or physician, you, you, you lay down on, on a stretcher and they roll you through, you know, the halls. Yeah. And you hear the bumping of the, the stretcher and you see this stuff on the walls and all the noise and the, you know, it, it's already a stressful time. Mm -hmm. No one goes to a hospital, you know, just to kind of hang out and enjoy it. Well, you could go to Mount Sinai and hang out and enjoy <laughs> it. That's, is, that, is that nice? On um, the luxury floor. Right. <laughs> We're going to get on that. But that is one of the things I wish we would have been introduced much earlier in the project because they really have to be right there at the forefront. Yeah. Um, the design process to add them in a year and a half down the road of your design. It just, you know, you're going to have to go back in and redo a lot of They have things. a phenomenal, this is Phillips now, yeah. they have a phenomenal ambient light yes. solution yes. throughout the hospital. Throughout the entire, so, so yeah. they gave us a couple of reference sites and we, and we saw them and, and I, I, you know. It's mind blowing. I have aromatherapy at my house, you know, <laughs> in my office. I'm all about it, right? For me, that was one of the things I wish um, would have been incorporated at the beginning we started so far in advance um, right. that and that's awesome. what I talked about a second ago. That's a newer product. It's been around. Right. The idea has been there, but it hasn't been fully developed until now. Right. It's like, oh, oh, it stops you in your tracks. It does. It's it that does. nice. And and if you think about it, Ben Davis told mm -hmm. me that during his portion of the construction, when he was over both projects at the same time, um, you know, as the VP, we tried to go about doing it in a different way. And if you look at the art installation. Oh, yeah. It's amazing. I, it's amazing. Yeah. I, I forget the woman. She was asking us some questions at the time. Mm -hmm. But I remember. Charlene. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's yeah, her. Charlene. Uh, oh, Walker. my gosh. Mm -hmm. The level of detail just in the artwork alone and just the visualization and the experience of the patient. And that was her only goal. Right. It was amazing. When you go in, to me, everybody has their own favorite pieces of art, right? Because mm -hmm. art is very subjective. But they have this one piece that is made, um, and I don't know the artist or anything else, but it's a glass structure, and it looks like an aquarium. And yeah. it's all made out of paper mache. Remember that? Um, and it's three-dimensional, and, and it's so cool. It's standalone, you know, has its own lighting and everything else. But they even have a rotating art display. Mm. You know, it's in the main concourse. Okay. On the, I, I would say, the south side of the wall. Mm -hmm. And uh, that rotates, I think it's every quarter. And they, they have uh, an arrangement with, you know, a local provider that will rotate different art installations. And now, since it's a good segue, right, the art and patient experience, because of the philanthropy the destination hospital aspect of Mount Sinai, there's a lot of patients and guests that, that they get from a patient population that have very, very high requirements and needs. Mm -hmm. And so um, on every- floor, We're going into the luxury part here, aren't we? We are. We are. <laughs> um, VIP suites, I believe there's maybe eight, two in each corner. So eight VIP suites on every floor. These 
rooms are absolutely amazing. You feel like you're staying at the Ritz Carlton. Really? You walk Those in. are the one rooms I had not gone in. I didn't need to go there. So I, I didn't, there was no need for me to we'll go get, check we'll them out. We'll get Ben to give you a tour. Um, <laughs> it, it, great. One of the rooms actually has its own conference space. It has its own refrigerator and everything else for wow. long-term guests. The, the beauty about it is every room within the new surgical tower has a family section. Mm-hmm. So just like you did here, right? Yeah. You could plug in your USBs and everything else, all your devices. You have your own sofa that turns into a bed, your own space away from the patient, but close enough where you can see your family member. Mm-hmm. That patient experience was key, right? How do you reduce stress having your family member there? Right. right now, most organizations will tell you due to COVID, there's a decline in elective procedures or even urgent procedures. I don't want to say emergent. And the reason why is because people have a very high stress level about having a procedure done. And if they can't have their family member there, now they're going in alone Mm -hmm. to what is probably one of the scariest events and most stressful events of their life. Overall, elective and urgent case volume is down because of that. Well, Mount Sinai did a great job at making sure that the family members would be able to stay with their patient at any time throughout the process. It's in the ICU all the way up to the post-acute care floors. Right. So, you know, I think that alone is tremendous safeguard there. But the VIP suites have their own art. And you look at it, the view is the Venetian. You can't beat it. Yeah, um, I'm yeah it, it's very amazing. When you go back from that project, now you're over at UM and you're developing what's new. What's changed in that short amount of time? Now, from when you actually had to go through the deductive reasoning process of who you're going to choose as a vendor partner, mm-hmm. their technology, what was being delivered, the architectural plans, CUN, DDs, all those terms that no one cares about. Completion of the project from the beginning, just take that timestamp of all the different tech that was just consideration, not just technology that was considered versus now. How much has changed? I finished my one year at UM on August 5th. Mid, thank you. Mid-COVID. My goal, and I think you remember this, right? Um, Mount Sinai had four different vice presidents of surgery yeah. in three and a half years. Right. And so think about the challenges associated with that. And I'll just say this, it's a challenge for anybody coming into an established planning process and try to inject yourself and catch up mm-hmm. and also try to understand the future thoughts, sure. right? And so no matter who came in, there are going to be challenges there where the technology piece, especially in the OR, is so daunting and intimidating. And luckily- That's what I mean when I was saying earlier, like you really have a knack for understanding the application of that tech as it's being introduced back into the OR. Like you can listen to multiple people at multiple positions of the introduction of that and then be able to apply it. Yeah, you know- I took the approach where I never sat in my office. I often said I didn't need an office. Oh, you just walk around all the time. You're I, just checking in with people, having conversations. I just scrub in, hang out with, you know, during surgical procedures to mm. be able to see what they're doing, what um, the challenges were. What has changed in the year, I'd say year and a half, right? Because it's about six months post, you know, mm-hmm. um, the post mortem, right? Right, uh, right. And then the year now. I think the major differences between the two organizations is the University of Miami, they understand technology to a greater extent than almost anybody out there yeah. because of the academic world, right? Academic medical centers, um, you know, I, I didn't really understand the complexity and the value of the resources until I started working. We there. did 
uh, a portion, not the entire thing, but I worked on their school of nursing. And they had a couple of different areas. Uh, one was head walls, ICU equipment booms. They had different labs that we all, in small pieces of integration. Every project, or every floor rather, was handled at a different project because it was that different. So I know what you mean by that. The amount of technology, I'll, I'll give a simple example for everybody who can understand. Mm. From the day I received my job offer, within 24 hours, I was already connected with a University of Miami email address on Office 365 and had access to my emails, my calendar, everything. <laughs> and that was within 24 hours of me signing the paper. You hear that, uh, IT folks? Yeah. Get on it. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, it is. And, and, you know, think about just right now in COVID, they're introducing so much technology to be able to allow for both remote and physical learning. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't a heavy lift. Telemedicine was already working at University of Miami. Does UM have their own version of telemedicine? We have a version, a version. Um, but we also are, are contracted as well. And so we have a hybrid approach. During COVID, we were tracking the amount of physical visits versus telehealth visits. What did you find? Skyrocketing telehealth. And then now there's a convergence to where it's 50-50, the volume of uh, patient visits. My preference is that I'm, I'm glad. I, I don't want to go and wait in a physician's office for any amount of time. And if I don't need a diagnostic or, mm -hmm. you know, or any blood work, I don't want to be there. I'll do a telehealth visit and you're on and done in 10 minutes. That's an article. I, I just read this yesterday with the rapid, we don't want to call it success yet, but the, the vaccine for COVID, mm -hmm. that process of the rapid test for diabetes or blood work or any kind of home kit that you can bring in and then mail out for telemedicine is going to reshape part of healthcare. So you're bordering the political portion of the conversation, right? Really. Um, <laughs> what I'll say I didn't is know that. Tell me. All right, here we go. What I'll say is that early, and this is this is the huge benefit of being at University of Miami. You are exposed to some of the greatest minds and resources out there. Mm. Within two weeks, we had already been in contact with the company that was already doing that. They, oh, they, really? they, they already had it established, ready to go. Doxy is the big one. Doxy yeah. was the one that has been out there. Mm -hmm. The only thing I didn't like about them in my own experience in the one telemedicine call that I had, I clicked the link and it just pops up. There's no waiting room. There's no, your information is going to be private. There was no kind of walkthrough. You need a ramp up. Now, again, that was when at first, this is in April, mm -hmm. COVID hit in March yeah. and no need to go to the doctor again. It was just boom, you in versus sign this. Now, the other thing I didn't like, I wasn't in a private room. I was in the hallway. Really? Really. Yeah. Because they're using a bank of monitors. What, what do you think? What's so I'm, I've been to that physical office before. Okay. And so as you're walking down the hallway, there was two exam rooms on each side. So four bays all together. So mm -hmm. one, two, three, four. And then there was a central nurse's station at the end of the hall. I was on that monitor. At the end of the hall, because I could see people traveling in yeah, and out. That's not how it, ours is set up in uh, physicians. Office. So that was that was my yeah, experience with it, yeah. which is I was like, wait a minute, yeah, I don't know them. PHI, and, yeah, you know, all the kinds of bunch of stuff, yeah, concerns there. And then I was looking at the uh, PA. I was looking at her left side, mm -hmm. and as she's writing and scribbling notes, so much so. And I, I said this on another podcast, and we're not going to develop it, but I came up with the concept of uh, my own telemedicine. And so you know, Otter. Mm -hmm. which is the auto transcription. So we developed a, I'll share the video when we're done, but we showed Michelle and I did a quick skit. Mm -hmm. And then as she was speaking and I was speaking, 
the AI would automatically register our words in real time. Yeah, do so translation. you do an auto translation. Yeah. And then every time we hit a hot word or what we termed a hot word, just let's say with a CPT code, it would flash red and then bank it into the file. Hmm. And then that would automatically go to the CVS or the EMR or whatever the patient portal suggestion would be for that one particular telemedicine app. That That's was pretty it. neat. And then that facilitate the billing and everything else. All of it. Yeah. Prescriptions. Yeah. So what it did was it allows this conversation, assuming that we're in that conversation right now, to happen as it is. You looking at me, me looking at you and saying, uh-huh, or let me see. And if you need to reference something, you can actually reference versus trying to take the notes. Because everyone's complaint with healthcare at the moment is that, you know, Tatiana, Kimaris, mm -hmm. uh, 80% of people do not trust their local hospitals because they feel... It takes too long. It's too expensive. It's too. Is that a real stat? Yeah. Wow. Perkins and Will. It's actually eighty-two percent. Eighty-two percent of people do not trust or feel comfortable in their local regional hospital. That's amazing. Which is why, if you look at the new That's standards, sad. that it really is sad. Mm -hmm. um, that they're looking in what healthcare is trying to do. They're trying to reestablish themselves as smaller, community-based, localized healthcare. You get a lot of urgent cares now. Mm -hmm. Consideration to those developments and buildings, do they have a CT and MR? Can they do the basics? So as a healthcare administrator, I'm not a big fan of urgent care. I appreciate a freestanding ED. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that there needs to be more specialization structures. But in urgent care, oftentimes the physicians aren't contracted, right? Um, right. They're there and you're, you're getting bills from multiple physicians. Yep. They're going to send you back unless you need sutures or something small, right? If you have a fracture and, and they can't do a closed reduction, they're going to send you to another ED. So when you look at it from a family perspective of managing your healthcare costs and urgent care has a larger impact on your overall expenses than a freestanding ED. Really? And, and not just because I was associated with freestanding EDs mm -hmm. at Mount Sinai. If you look at Anything hmm. of any critical nature, if you go to an urgent care, they're going to have to refer you on. Now, when you look at the idea of funneling patients back to the main campus, right, or a feeder program, urgent cares are great. It allows you to have a footprint out in the community. Yeah. And the patient comes in and instead of, say, for example, Baptist Health, they have urgent cares everywhere, right? And that feeds their, their that's, acute care That's hospitals. the main goal. That, that's right. exactly what they were going for with that. That's what she expressed back <clears> in the podcast. But that model is built for the provider, not for the patient. Absolutely. It's designed to be a feeder system. Right. Your, your daughters are in sports. You know, yeah. if you have a fracture, you go into urgent care, or you go into an ED. I'm going to go to an ED. I know better. I'm going to a doctor that's registered with that facility that you have follow up with, not right. someone who's privately contracted, who's not, who's going to bill, and then we have to pay for it again. And then we come up for a follow up visit, it's a different physician. Right. Right. Yeah, it's annoying. Yeah. I, I don't I don't like that model at all. Mm -hmm. More about the outreach and the tentacles. So now if you paid attention to our region of healthcare, look what's happening. You you know I'm gonna say Baptist yeah. is leapfrogging. Cleveland Clinic is trying to leapfrog that. Memorial is trying to leapfrog that. Memorial is trying to do the same thing. Holy Cross now is trying to do the same right. thing. HCA. Uh, HCA, right? Yeah. Everyone's trying to position themselves locally to regionalize where their main hospital or their feeder system is going to be. Correct. Which is one's enough enough. Well, yeah. Right? I, I went from Sinai, well, from Baptist. And at the time when I was at Baptist, you know, we had, I think there was six hospitals. West Kendall hadn't been built yet. It was in the construction phase yep. when I left. Mm -hmm. Plus Which is a beautiful building, by the way. Oh, my is. gosh, it's awesome. Yeah, you know. Um, but that's the only growth job. area of South Florida, right. that sector of the, is the dense, state. densely populated. Yeah. And they had, I think, a total of like 
18 locations at the time when I left in 2007. Don't quote me on the number. Uh, wow. I went to Sinai then with the, you know, the freestanding EDs plus the physician practice. They jumped up to about 21, 22 during my tenure there. And then I jump over to University of Miami U Health, Miller School of Medicine, and there are 92 separate locations. Yeah. Talk about a footprint that encompasses all of South Florida, all the way over, you know, to Naples and, and, you know, all the way. With an awesome football program. <laughs> Go Canes, <laughs> right? Go Canes. Growing up in Miami, you know, yep. I, I'm, I'm a UM fan from day one, but the amount of outreach to the community and serving the population is, is tremendous. I do think at some point it's going to be saturated. And when I, when I do my presentations for a lot of the sales companies, I say South Florida is from a healthcare sales rep perspective, sales manager perspective is the toughest and most competitive sales environment in the nation. Yeah. Without question. Right. I've worked down here and I've also <clears throat> worked in New York city, bar none, Miami. It's equivalent to Los Angeles traffic, <laughs> right? Yeah. In Jacksonville, Florida. Yeah. Both are busy depending on where you live. But LAX is going to wipe everyone out. Right. Yeah. Miami's going to wipe everyone out. Uh, if the old phrase of you can make it here, you can make it anywhere in New York is doesn't exist anymore. Well, I, I remember one year I was lecturing for Baxter, right? The number one sales guys are always from New York, right? I get up on stage and, you know, I, I always like to start off busting a little bit of balls. And I, so I said, okay, my South Florida team over here, you know, and, and they're like, oh, yeah. Uh, and I go, okay, so who's the top sales? Who's top? Who's platinum? Right. right. This guy gets up and he's yelling and I say, okay, definitely from New York. Right. He's like, yeah, I go, listen, if you are not the top salesperson and you serve that Jenny Ha, you know, community, then you should be fired. Anybody serving New York should automatically be the top sales in any company. Mm. And, and that's why I said the whole sales piece of it, sales versus partnering are two different things, transactional yeah. versus relational. Building those relationships are really key in healthcare. And I think down here, it's very tough because it's a transient environment. Yep. Physicians come in, either through residency or fellowship, they transition out, they may come back. A lot of physicians stay for two or three years and they transition. Mm -hmm. It's a very tough referral market. Yeah, it is. Um, to establish and build and maintain. It presents a, a lot of headwinds and then, you know, couple all that with large Medicare fraud. It's, I remember you told me that years it's ago. It's yeah. tough. It's a tough environment. It isn't, it's the number one in the country, right? For Medicare fraud? It, it may have changed in the last 12 months with all this uh, COVID. It was. Yeah. Probably not proud of it. No, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated about that discussion because the other one part of the conversation uh, doesn't involve you at all, but is medical bankruptcy. I'm really, I'm really trying hard to pinpoint someone who really understands that market and how to help people. It's really unfortunate that people have to go bankrupt. Now, if they're not managing their funds well, that's one thing. Lack of health care or insurance, whatever, whatever the reasons may be, but it breaks my heart. If someone needs help, they shouldn't be going bankrupt over it. It just leads down a deep, dark rabbit hole that people can't find a way out. Mount Sinai did a great job. I'm not very well tuned with the numbers over at uh, UM yet, but Mount Sinai does a ton of indigent care, you know, and they do a lot of write-offs for some of these patient bills. And they do a great job at it, uh, serving that local community. You think about it, back when Mount Sinai was probably, you know, established, there was a, lot, a high density of Social Security. 
Mm-hmm. The demographic on the on the beach has changed significantly where you have 20 and 30 year olds living there with no health insurance at all. You know, and imagine that, right? Just from a theoretical and parental conversation, I have a conversation with my kids. You know, we're doing a tremendous amount of investing in their education so that between, you know, Barb, Rick and I, that when they get out of school, hopefully they come out debt free. Because imagine being mm. strapped with, you know, student loan debt, trying to build a career. Say you're a freelancer. It was the hot term, uh, not freelancing, what they call it. Uh, now I'm sounding like I'm an old man. No, I, I know what you mean. Consultant? Private consultant? No, no. no. The gig economy, right? So say you're oh, working, I have no the, idea. Yeah, you work yeah. in the gig economy, right? So you're doing all these small gigs and everything else. You got a great education, but you're strapped to student loan debt. You have to pay rent. You have to buy a car. And then all of a sudden, you have an appendectomy, emergency appendectomy. And mm-hmm. you're strapped now with forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 in debt. Healthcare debt. How do you survive? Yeah, you don't. You know. Well, um, not that you don't, but you got to do something, which is the only alternative at that point. The one thing too, because that brings about a whole other topic that I'm not going to go down. But why you're allowed to bankrupt yourself for certain situations, but not others, and college debt and tuition and everything else like that. So I am very much open to Florida prepaid. You know, yeah. you, you turned me on to that when we first moved down here. Great program. Unbelievable program. You know um, who uh, who wrote the bill? Stanley Tate, who I, I don't know if he's still on the board over at Mount Sinai. And he actually ran a program down here for young Republicans you know, to really establish the political process. But he wrote that bill and everybody's been able to benefit from it. And for families in Florida, it's a great opportunity to send your mm-hmm. kid, uh, kids off to college at a, yeah. at a reasonable I have two rate. out of my four paid for already. Yeah. I mean, look, there's enough courses out in America now that you can learn a lot and do well and make a career. Not to say that you're going to push down to college education because every level of learning is going to be different, but there's no reason to leave with fifty dollars to $100,000 in debt. I had Dr. Brent Lacey on just to put this in perspective on a medical education, okay? Mm-hmm. One head. So this, let's say, Dr. Nate, mm-hmm. you leave medical school. On average, you're leaving with a minimum of five hundred to six hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Terrible medical school. Now, if you meet your partner, easily over a million dollars, easily. And I go, how do they do that? Then when you're talking about people who are getting burned out, and I mean, well, you're burning at both ends at this point, right? right? And then you have to hold the practice open and a mortgage, and And, it's unbelievable. The thing, most of these physicians were the top students in their class, extremely right. competitive. They've been burning, you know, at both ends for their entire career. They're, at some point, they need to be able to enjoy it. It doesn't seem like it's uh, it's likely anytime soon. Yeah. You know. I have three things for you on okay. the way out. Is there anything we haven't talked about that you think that someone could learn from? Because it took me a while to get Nate here. I literally considered him part of my top five. That's how long I've been wanting him to get here. And, it, and we're almost a year into this. Is there anything that you think someone can learn from you from something you wouldn't talk about? Um, built a career around kind of intimidating sales reps, else, <laughs> right? Um, and the older I got, the less I was trying to prove and really trying to learn. I think the humble approach and humility has really, you know, allowed my career to develop over the time. Part of that is really partnering instead of looking at suppliers as agro dudes or women who are coming in to just take your money and run, really trying to understand and build relationships with the ones who are there for the patient and balancing the needs of the organization. You are an advocate, right? And I think this is the relationship piece, right? 
as physicians, they trust me to be an advocate for their technology uh, requests and ideas. You, by extension, become an advocate to your companies to go back and get deeper discounting to understand, hey, we need to help them move forward on this project and not Mm. hinder them. And really developing those relationships to where you can see mutual beneficial outcomes. And how do you do that? If you start in the planning phase really quick, you get your equipment planner on. Don't come in with a mindset. We have to use our incumbents. That I think is going to limit what you can introduce. Go on as many site visits as your organization can afford. See different things. Like, for example, we went up to Nemours Children's South, I think. Or Orlando. Orlando. Yeah. You want to talk about an organization that built it around the patient experience. Oh, yeah. First time I thought, I want to be a kid that needs a procedure. I was was fortunate to work on the Delaware campus Mm -hmm. uh, back when they were putting on their new patient tower for intensive care. It was amazing. The coordination, the effort, the amount of resources they have. Of course, the DuPonts have Mm -hmm. resources out the wazoo. That's how they got everything funded. So money was not an object. It was actually more about resources. Do we have the right people here to do the job that we need to do for the kids, for the community? Because it's not just a local community hospital. No. It's, a, it's a global destination. Yeah, regional, right? Yeah. yeah. That's a region, region's work, right? Mm-hmm. And there, for example, you know, you talked about the interruption of monitoring of a patient. They took us from the ER to the OR to the ICU and to the patient floor. Right. That patient went along. They had so many repeaters and everything else to maintain the the wireless connection from all their monitors that everything went directly into their EHR. It was an amazing situation. So I would have never known that without the experience of going there firsthand, looking at it, asking tons of questions. I mean, we had a script Mm. of questions that we would ask as our core group based upon our uh, subject matter expert perspective. Oftentimes we would get that done and still have four or five more pages of different questions because it was just so interesting at each one of the different sites that you get the feedback, but then to bring it back and sit down in a room and have the debrief and understand, okay, here's what we saw. Is this something that we want? And then try to work with our suppliers to really say, okay, we're going to challenge you. Mm. Go out and try to figure it out and come back and tell me how you can do it. Sometimes I still go back to that word balance, man. My my gosh, how did you balance all that? Because- I look at it from this seat. You're not an administrator. You're a guy who loves people, who has children, who has an outside life, but then you're also responsible for taking care of people. You, uh, Most of them you're never going to meet across a whole spectrum of people with variety of deep needs. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> I think in healthcare, you have to have the passion for mm. it. I, I truly love it, right? My entire career has been in healthcare over 30 years now. You know, Mine as well. Yeah. And- to me, I wouldn't choose any other profession other than being like um, a philosophy, you know, uh, <laughs> professor. I at, think I'm going that same route. Right, oh right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. You're an educated guy. We yeah. know you like Maxim Gladwell. Yeah. How do you keep yourself up on the up? You read every day for about three hours? Minimum of three hours a day. But what are you intense. focusing on? Like, what are the areas? Do you have a different topic every day? Do you have a different article or a staple of every day of you read this? Or listen to this for that matter. Every day. Yeah, I spend a lot of time on tech. I go through a bunch of tech podcasts. You know, we kind of talked about a couple of them at the beginning. Uh, Leo Laporte with his entire um, spectrum of tech. This week in Google and this week in Android. And 
He goes through all the different things. See By the that. way, if you didn't notice, I am almost a full iOS guy. I, I, I didn't. I saw the watch. I saw the iPad. I was <laughs> yeah. like, if he pulls out, you know, a MacBook Air, I'm gonna, I'm gonna fall <laughs> off the chair here. Started with this thing because the USB C. Yeah, you can download in that. Right. I was like, oh, I don't need this. I still love my Android mm-hmm. stuff. But then when iOS 13 came out, I was like, man, this is this is pretty close. So yeah, I mean, Scott and I used to have these theoretical debates over <laughs> over drinks on Android versus uh, iOS. Yeah. And Although Android. now in perspective, this is this one feature. Now, if anyone from Apple is listening, I can turn on my Android device and hit the word download. I can download something. But if I want to download something from a Google Drive onto my iPhone, I have to hit send to and then this. And yeah. it's a still a triple process. Can it happen? Yep. But a triple process versus the single process. Yeah. Please fix it. Please fix it. Or get USB-C. Or or, or, or figure out a way to integrate it, right? You might be able to do it with the shortcuts now with uh, iOS 14. So, yeah, Pushkin Industries, you know, Malcolm Gladwell is one of my my favorites. One of the books I just finished um, a couple of weeks ago is uh, The Biggest Bluff. um, Mm -hmm. And she has a PhD. I saw that on Audible the other day. Yeah, it's a great read. I actually read half the books, put it away, turned around and got the audio version. And by the way, if you're using Audible, get rid of that. Oh, really? Why? The best thing that someone taught me, and this person reads 300 books a year, right? Go down to your public library, yeah. get a library card. And if you have one already, perfect. You go on and you download an app called Libby, L-I-B-B-Y. Uh-huh. You enter your library card number. That. And then what you do is you have access to eBooks as well as Audible books. And you can either choose to use it through their app, which I love wow. their app. Um, I actually love their app. Or you can actually choose to open it up in Kindle. Libby by Overdrive. Yeah. There it is right there. Yeah. And it's free. So Holy crap. And it's a good rating too. Look at that. Yeah. Okay. I'm sold. These are all like the books I've read in the last two weeks. Holy shit. Right. And you go through. I have Broward. You can switch. I can change it to Miami Dade. Wow. Broward lets you do an online library card. Yeah, yeah. So get library cards because you can do the Palm Beaches, right? But you get... Do that wow, and make it Broward. So cool. And then if you can't find the book in one, search you it. You saved us a lot of money. The other one. So my kids were <laughs> spending probably about 300 bucks a month on books. Really? Yeah. Somebody told me about it. I started using it. I use it for about three months. Not every book is on there. Also, if you get multiple libraries, that's where you have the benefit, right? Mm-hmm. And then what you can also do is Library of Congress and everything else. They have an actual app. So if you want to go on and, and read historical books and everything else, it's all free. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I probably read about three to four books a month, and that's all about different topics. Um, right now, um, we kind of talked about it at the beginning, but artificial intelligence, machine learning, automation, big data, doing the data scientist course on really trying to understand and wrap my head around what this means. For example, in supply chain right now, so looking at immediate solutions, mm-hmm. There is a master's program at the University of Miami Analytics, and we've hired a couple people from there, and they work on my team. So I started off with value analysis a year ago. Now I have value analysis, asset management, clinical engineering, and analytics optimization and quality. Wow. And so I, yeah, so I took on these amazing whiz kids, and they're all deeply, deeply educated on all the topics I just mentioned. Mm-hmm. You present a challenge to them and they run with it. To me, I see because of automation and EDI in the supply chain realm, I won't need buyers. I won't need a huge value analysis team. If you look at AI and ML, right? 
I got the NLP mixed up, but natural language processing, I might not need dialysis people, right? You would have people who are auditing those functions mm-hmm. and loading the data sets, but you don't really need to have the actual physical person I see the same. there doing it. Yeah. So look at what I'm doing. I'm trying to do over at uh, University of Miami now, right? And I, this is one of the things I wish we would have been able to do over at Sinai. And if I get the chance and they let me nerd out a little bit, um, mm-hmm. you know, I'll do it over at UM. And I'm trying to move everything to remote diagnostics and alerts. So right now the nurses are able through, and I'm not going to name companies because I, you know, I don't want to get yelled at that I miss one of them, yeah. but you, you can get the vitals directly on an iOS or an Android device. And you can actually send messages from that within the, the physical building so that you're able to really manage that patient. You prevent code blues and, you know, RRTs right. and things like that. So I started looking at it in the context because clinical engineering report to me over at Sinai and it was third party. And I think that presents a little bit of challenges because they know what they know. Yeah. Working with you guys and people who are out there on the forefront and have access to a ton of these really brainy engineers, remote diagnostics and advanced alerts. I'm really trying to move most of the equipment to that type of technology. Yeah, Siemens is working with us on it on a local level, uh, Siemens Med Lab, but really point all that information in, having systems managing it, alerting us, hey, you know what? On Saturday, you might know you want to lower the patient schedule so that we can come in and do a PM in the afternoon so that it's up and running mm. um, by Sunday. You know, That's where the value analysis comes in. Yeah, just really taking in that data and using it. What I'm seeing a lot in healthcare is big data, big data, big data, but no one's doing anything with it. Right. Um, it's really taking all these outputs, putting them through some type of engine. And I, I just finished a series of interviews because I just hired a new director of analytics. And I met this one guy and he really had a great grasp of their concepts. And he was telling me, hey, not only can you do that, he was taking it to another level where right. from medical sales, healthcare sales side is great do predictive analytics based upon the fleet of equipment that you're managing. We recommend, and you're pulling in EHR and scheduling and other different inputs, you're able to predict what your fleet size should be, when you should replace it based upon how many clicks, right? Patient experience. And now you're able to proactively manage that fleet. I know that other companies, and, and I want to put their names out there, have come to us about, hey, you know, we have some business models that say we could go to a per click event so that you pay per patient experience versus paying for capital. In COVID, say, you know, you want to reduce costs in healthcare. If everybody, you know, from acute care hospital perspective was on this system, your patient volumes drop. Guess what? You're not paying for the equipment that's in there not being used. Right. You only pay for it and the higher volume, the higher you pay, but you gain the net effect of, you know, more traffic. And so different business models are really kind of where I'm trying to take that. But what it requires is trying to understand what they're doing in other industries, Mm -hmm. trying to figure out, okay, is there anything that's similar and can we apply it? Or do I just give it to these whiz kids and say, okay, here's the idea. What can you produce? And then let's optimize it. So the one, the people I just hired, you know, this over at uh, Mount Sinai, that the gentleman, Ben Davis, industrial engineer, hired a bunch of industrial engineers, been working with them, that optimization portion, analytics and optimization. So mm-hmm. I hired an IE who is going to come in and help not only improve the supply chain services, but also when we look at asset management, right? Do we have equipment across the health system that 
isn't being used at certain locations that we could pool and then redistribute through my clinical engineering team to reduce our capital investment in equipment that's just going to sit there idle. You know, we're really trying to pull in those data points to understand what it looks like. Mm -hmm. And then I can go to the leadership team and say, based upon this analysis, here's what we've come up with and roll out a different business plan that is a little bit non-traditional, right? And hopefully they adopt it. I I think- This is fascinating. It's fun stuff. It really is. I mean, because not that you're replacing- If you look at the demands and everything we've talked about so far today, there's a lot of demands. And for one, not one person, but a team of people to constantly revolving in thinking about this at the same time, you do need some automation built in. You need to. If you're going to run it effectively, efficiently, and manage all those caseloads and those different personalities and then disciplines as you go down the line. So, yeah, I can see that. And and, and if you think about it, it really goes back to something very simple. Mm. You know, the panels. Right. Right. You want to move forward. You can move forward with anything. Just pop the panel out, pop the new panel in with the new monitor and everything else. And and you move forward. And now you're not having to destroy all your infrastructure and everything else and have downtime and everything else. It's really staying agile and being able to move with the technology because it's it's moving very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. I did sidebar something right in the very beginning. What the hell is the holdup from people adapting, adopting, just hugging new technology and bringing it in? Fear. Just that's fear. it. My guess is, in my experience, I'll, I'll just say this. Yeah. People fear the technology. They don't understand it. And then when you get into it, training, you were trained one way. Mm. Can you adapt? And just go back to the 80s when laparoscopic surgery, people were still doing open procedures. Mm. And then the Da Vinci, intuitive release the Da Vinci, going from, say, a colon surgeon doing a, a lower resection. Have you seen 270 surgical? No. <sighs> what is that? So, think of a GoPro mm-hmm. at the end of a scope. Oh, so 270 field. Yeah, it is mm-hmm. unbelievable. It's going to take anything that needs an endoscope. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's just lot coldly simple to explain versus looking through a straw like this. Now you're looking through, you can see everything. Wow. They took a 60-inch monitor. And they cut off the top bezel and they cut off the bottom bezel or the black area because mm-hmm. it's going to be the resolution is going to be a little bit different. I think it's like 1920 20. by 700 or something like mm-hmm. that. So the monitor frame itself and the bezels are way, way off. And think of the Samsung curved screen. Right. Because that's the view that they're getting. When you think about the Bovinix accidentally, which really happening, those all go away. You can see the entire field. That's amazing. And so I was like, my gosh. Now it's specialty, it's certain IFUs or specific procedures, mm-hmm. but that's just one case of technology that I Can saw. I get you in trouble? Sure. A second? So I, I, I like to ask these little little questions, right? Yeah. I know that on the Surgical Tower Project, we chose Stryker for integration. I think the <clears> huge <throat> benefit and the point that you made to me was we were getting Berktold booms for Stryker pricing, which was, was huge. Yeah. Well, at um, that time, they were merged. They were fully merged. It was a yeah. Stryker product by then. It was still <laughs> in the rollover, though, from the acquisition. Yeah. And I've always debated this, especially with like Betty Messer and others within the endo division. My biggest pet peeve is glass rod lens. Why why are we still doing that? I think that Storts, you know, and I'll just talk about Storts for a second, right? Storts going to a flexible distal tip to allow the fibers to take it. I get that technology. I I don't like their service model, which makes it you're buying a Ferrari and you're paying Ferrari prices Mm -hmm. um, on an annual basis. They are really expensive. They are. Olympus. 
we had uh, one of the physicians looking into notes, natural orifice, transluminal endoscopic surgery, mm -hmm. and you know, how does that work? But Stryker with all the technology, the more money than God sitting there, you know, they'll self-finance everything and they're still on glass rod lens. What's going on there? Do you so know? here's what's going on with all the companies and I will pinpoint what's great and what's weak with all of them, right? Mm -hmm. So Olympus, and if you look into that conversation with John, they are actually adopting the glass technology and they're moving away from that 3D in the chip. And they're also coming out with a solution of an Orbi type where they're going to have a single rod going in with multiple devices or modalities coming out. Really cool for stuff. For single incision or for? For, for single incision okay. or umbilicus, yep. right? Mm -hmm. Stryker has the Osborne effect. That's their complete sales model. And you know what I mean by that. So it's 80% of the time, 80% of the people are going to love and like what they do. Mm -hmm. And they're... They're selling old technology, frankly. I mean, when you look at the, I want to make sure my numbers are right. I'm going to be honest and fair yeah. with this whole thing is that I believe that minimum at the 1488, potentially the 1588 camera, they were using a four Osmos, which is equivalent to the iPhone four camera wow. at the end of their scope. Now with computational photography, and that's where they upped it. And then with the control codes from that camera box to the monitors, that's where right. they, where everything kind of coordinated. But everyone does that, to be fair. Right. The difference was with Storz versus Olympus, and, and the, they actually brought the camera where it needed to go versus through the glass lens that you're talking about. And it's just a process. Now, now, one of the biggest reasons why they didn't have better tech, they didn't want to pay for it. Because that was just how they run, how they operate. So, so I, I'll challenge you, right? Yeah. Because because you asked me the same question. Why don't people adopt technology, right? That is a technological advantage that they could have well, uh, well, distinguished this, themselves. We have bit. two guys in one room right now who love tech. Yeah. We can go back and forth and rap and say, yeah, what about, what about, and probably come up with some great ideas and go into business, mm -hmm. right? Majority of the sales professionals that are out there, and they really, if you consider yourself a sales professional, you should be fired, one. Uh, you should be considering yourself a sales consultant, and then you'll have a real job. Because if you're not consulting people, you're just a used car salesman. And I will say that all day. I used to tell the entire Striker team that Scott's not a sales rep. He's a good partner and <laughs> right. consultant, but if you're asking him to sell product, he might not sell the product because he's going to give you a better product than you need. It might not be from Striker at the time. Yeah, probably. <laughs> so <laughs> I love tech. I love everything they can do. For example, like this space right here, I, I thought about it a lot. I didn't want cables on the ground. I have three cables going through and I'm already going to buy one of those strips as a cover. I don't want to rip up my floor. It, right. You know, my wife will go batshit crazy <laughs> on me. So. When you look at all those different variables going through there, they didn't want to pay for the R&D. So I always challenge companies and I'll say, how much do you reinvest back in R&D? Most are going to say, oh, we do 8 to 9%. You know how many times I've heard that term? I'm telling everyone right now it's a bunch of bullshit. It's less than 2%. <laughs> less. Is that, is that low? Yeah. But Strikers moved their business model from R&D to M&A, right? Uh, they have, and majority of, and so let's go on the integration for a minute, right? So this is real. This is going to happen. So the prime two people, well, here, here's how the three people in every major organization, in my point of view, are going to work. You have the CEO who's going to be the fundraiser. Mm -hmm. You're going to have the CIO who is going to be more important than the CTO, the COO, CIO is going to be the top. So the chief information officer or the CIT. 
So I he's the one who's reading the data. Ways and means, right? Most powerful uh, yeah. committee in Congress. So CFO still reigns supreme. I don't know. <laughs> because they're <laughs> going to pay for everything. They're going to know the numbers, mm -hmm. but they're going to know the data. Now you're different because you know both. But you also have to think, right? If you leave you and I in a room and with no consideration for budget, we're going to have the best tech. Oh, yeah. We'll we, have the, yeah, whatever, the company will go broke, but we'll yeah. have the best tech. <laughs> we'll have the best right? tech. <laughs> and then from there, uh, so you have the CEO as the fundraiser, the CIO, and then supply chain. That's it. That's healthcare. That's your trifecta. I think you got to throw the CFO back in there because you look at going well, from I think the CFO and the CIO will probably, well, yeah, SaaS is the big thing now. Fee-for-service to value-based, right? Yeah. You know, ACO model. One of the great things with Philips is they have unbelievable technology. Yeah. One of the problems with them at the same time is they're now financing all their stuff. Look at the grander picture. Now healthcare is subsidized by third-party vendors. Right. Wrong move, people. Wrong move. And so now we're going to have a single-payer system potentially introduced or redeployed through whatever Trump's going to try to do, because I, I think he's going to win the election. Mm. It's going to be a hot mess. I'm not touching any of no, no, that part either. of it, but what I will say is uh, the self-finance model, you know, when Jack Welch left GE and GE had to sell off and invest themselves, mm -hmm. shows that it, it doesn't work. Right. It doesn't work. Yeah. And even now, when I get the call, I say, send it out to market. I, I'm glad that, you know, Stryker, Storts and, you know, Medtron, everybody wants to give us pennies on the dollar. But you know what? Send it out to market and see what we get um, yeah. because it, you, you never know. Well, here's the other substantial thing that's going on, too, to, to pick up on that question is Stryker is the last of 4K in integration. Uh, they've had it development. Um, Whatever their process is, right? Remind so, me to talk about the codec and everything else when you finish because oh. you're hitting on a – because I just looked and that's one of the lessons learned. But go ahead. Yeah, so the codec. So anyway, so the, so 4K throughout and then when someone says 4K throughout, you're going to say, okay, sure, they can transmit, but what can receive? Right. Okay, that that's another big option. So for – there are companies and I don't want to – Bash in one, but there are a couple of companies, not just one or two, there's a couple, few companies rather, that can only display their 4K on their field monitors. They can't even do their wall monitors or their in-room cameras. Mm -hmm. They didn't think about that. So when they say throughout, you have to say, yes, you can push the 4K, but the receiving end, meaning the display, can it display that 4K? Barco, this is a big one. This is actually... This is why I believe the CIO is going to be in the top three is Barco, which is a hardware-based, server-based company, is involved with every major integration company in the United States. They will own 93% or more of the hardware. Integration doesn't matter. Integrations now, booms, lights, sutures, whatever. Right. It's, just, it's just a commodity, right? What's getting specific is what they're doing with their AI and their ML, what you're talking about. So everyone doesn't know ML is machine learning. That's where it comes into where the data analytics, case scheduling, what's happening in SPD, RFID, all that yeah. stuff, right? Yeah. So that's what's mattering the most. So Barco's going to own all of it. So your focus should be VNA, so vendor neutral archives, mm -hmm. and how well does it concatenate all the information for a single hit back to the EMR? That's how you save money. So is Barco licensing? Their platform for everybody. Oh, yeah. That's what it okay. Yeah. So, and if you look at a company called Care Syntax, they tried their best to get their AI model. It's still in development, but Barco put in a $10 million round A funding capital seed into Care Syntax. Care Syntax is owned by Bjorn von Siemens.
that company is on the forefront of some pretty cool tech that's undeployed at the moment, but that's what they're working on. But Barco, now think about the play here, which I think is brilliant. They're going to own 90% or more across, let's just name them, Stryker, Carl Storitz, Olympus, uh, Geninga, Steris, because uh, Black Diamond's there, mm-hmm. BrainLab uh, as well. So that's seven, just off the top of my head, and there's at least two more, right? So they're going to own 90% of all that hardware, backbone, just main server type stuff. But yet they're taking their investment and put into AI that's VNA based. Wow. Yeah. It's going to be significantly so disruptive. The a- AWS for healthcare. <clears throat> yeah. Which is why I keep going back to the CIO is all they're going to care about is we want a vendor neutral recording device mm-hmm. or server based system that can communicate omnidirectional, right. not even just bi-directional mm-hmm. anymore, but omnidirectional and can do X and it's going to be open code. Uh, Tom Soleil, you remember Tom, mm-hmm, yeah. right? He was on the cast early, earlier on. Love and- the guy. I went out with him and we sat down, had coffee for two hours. And when I left, I felt like I hadn't learned everything and I knew nothing prior, yeah. prior to the conversation. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. He went through and he detailed out what that was going to look like and mapped it all out. I was like, wow. And I had the same emotion when I left. I was like, oh my gosh, I just don't know what I learned. (laughs) My head was blown up at the same time. That's what's happening. And so healthcare is going to be 100% data-driven. It's going to be all analytics and predictive. Signals. It's all signals. Yeah. That's it. And that's all it is. So you're absolutely right. When I heard you talking about all that, I'm like, man, and that's what I mean about that. And going back to the beginning of the conversation, how far ahead you are than everybody else. You got to get uncomfortable. So the level of of interference in your own personal game professionally mm-hmm. needs to get where yours is. Well, I, I believe you push yourself. You and I talked about daily routines, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I'm a 4.45 a.m. guy and done by 7 o'clock, ready to go, sit down, start reading, you know, and everything else. In your conversation, you hit on a couple of points, and that's what I forgot to talk about. Codec. The codec, yeah. 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 Part of the challenge that we face. Let me take a time out. Yeah. So everyone who doesn't understand what a codec is, just think of something that can reach other computer systems outside of where you are. The four walls. Yeah, yeah. that's all. When we started looking at the overall design, remember Stryker had yet to release their HD codec. That's right. But yeah. they're sitting there selling us exactly what you're talking about. Uh, Eddie, I gave him a hard time, right? He's like, I'm just a simple guy from Tennessee. Come on, man. <laughs> um, you know, I'm, I'm going I'm I'm to give him a call tonight. One of the things that- We'll tell him and Dom that uh, we mentioned him. Crown Medical, give yeah, him a plug. Crown Medical, Dom Salzano. <laughs> um, you know, he came in, he was talking about HD, talking about HD on my cables, yeah, yeah. talking about, you know, 1080, and I'm talking about 4K. We started getting into this overall debate and part of the challenge that forced us outside of our comfort zone, right? We were a striker out of the box solution for Dr. Lamelis' first OR, right? Dr. Mellis went out and he felt that the recording device was just poor. Yeah. And he's presenting. And he was so right. You remember his office? Yeah. He has these huge Macs in there. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if he took a crash course. I think it was lynda.com, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and he learned how to use Keynote. Yeah. So he, he learns Keynote. Then he goes and has us buy these Macs with these recording devices. We were taking the signal from the striker system and recording them. So then he can upcode them right into what is it, MP4. Yeah, and before, yeah. yeah. So that he can actually put them into Keynote for his presentation mm-hmm. so that you never lost the quality of the video. Again, I would have used Premiere Pro. <laughs> well, 
I'll tell him. I'll tell him. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe he's using it now. But that's one of the things. So Premiere.mov. versus .mp4, Premiere Pro, which is the editing software that we use, mm-hmm. does all of it. Okay. So versus wow. having to convert it, it does it automatically. It automatically registers, and then it, it just flips it over to whatever um, the extension is, and Perfect. then you're done. That's great. Yeah. So you knew my problem, right? Mm-hmm. When when I came to you, I said. Eddie's telling me all this about 1080, 1080, 1080, maybe 2K and all this other stuff. I go, but the codec is going to broadcast at a 720p. Right. And I go, that's ridiculous. Yeah. You know, well, that's HD. I go, remember we were, we were over there in Texas and I said, guys, listen, anybody who thinks 720 is HD and this is, you know, three, three years ago now, you know, is, is out of their mind. Mm-hmm. And, but that's a problem with a lot of different companies though. They bank on their legacy equipment because they're not putting enough R&D in it because their margins aren't high enough yet. Right. Just like, for example, like Apple, they just released the iPhone 12, which looks beautiful, but it's nothing more than a larger, more refined iPhone 4, which was the first version of that square version. Well, the A14 processor, come on, give them, give them some credit. Well, well, you know what I mean? But it's, form factor. As far and, as the yeah. form factor <laughs> and then fitting everything in. Yeah. But all that is when you learn how to use CAD is just, you're just moving things around. Yeah. Until it fits. You got to make space for the magnets. Right. That's yeah. what I'm saying. Right. That magnet's going to be a big deal. The codec was going to be the bottleneck of the quality of video that we were going to send out there. Yep. Right. And so that's where we start talking. Hey, should we just go out and buy our own HD codecs and figure out a way? And it forced Stryker to come back in and say, okay, here we'll go ahead and add that to the cost of the overall package and we'll figure out the coding script to be able to allow it to work. Mm-hmm. But it's one of those things where industry wasn't keeping up with the pace of what our needs were. And then if you fast forward, just recently I had a conversation on these three R's that we're building over at uh, UM for our robotic suites with stores and 4K, 4K, 4K. And I go, okay, we're doing 4K. What's the codec? 1080p. I truly appreciate your point, right? And we did this when we were broadcasting to China from Mount Sinai. We were sending on the PRI line 1080p. They had one ISDN line. So they're seeing 480i, mm. no matter what we're sending. But oh. I always said, I'd rather be sending at the highest speed and best video quality. And the bottleneck now is on their side, right? whatever they receive. But yeah. in the context of what you're doing here, but also apply it because these cameras are the same as what we're using in, in the OR, right? right. If you're going to really have interactive discussions, Baskin Palmer does a great job. They have daily conferences within the ORs. So I was responsible for changing out their surgical lights. When we first took over the Bertold after that acquisition and merger for that Mm -hmm. matter. Remember the old kettle can silver? That's what they had in the ceiling. Yeah. It was crazy. And they they were rated the number one. Still are. We are are the number one eye institute. You know, you don't need lights Mm -hmm. to have a great ophthalmology program. You just, you don't. Um, but what they did focus on, well, I, I said, right, but on. I don't know if that's true. Ask one of the physicians. Well, there's, there's some procedures that you do, yeah. but they did focus on their HD and they picked stores because they had a true, now it was 1080p at the time, mm-hmm. 1080p recording device. Right. And you talked about image stream and their failure, which I think they solved. I don't know if they solved it or not, but they could auto index and bookmark right. and all that kind of I stuff. And that was really cool. This is what AI is doing on top of that, mm-hmm. which is if everyone's listening, like take note, like. Don't buy a recording device just for the indexing and bookmarking. Buy a recording device from automated indexing. Let me explain a scenario. You have one physician teaching school at UM, right? Mm-hmm. And you may have one surgeon overseeing, let's say, uh, six attendings, right? Mm-hmm. Or five. And they handle two to three surgical cases a week per head. 
that's 15 cases times an hour. That's 15 hours. You think that primary is going to have an additional 15 hours to review? We do all the, all the tape. Yeah. No, he's not. Tape, uh, all, well, the recordings. all the recordings, yeah, right? Yeah. So now what happens is this is where the AI comes in, the machine learning. Mm-hmm. It is now it auto-indexes. So it takes that hour and through the concatenated good procedures mm-hmm. and bad procedures, it says what's good, what's bad, what's good, consistently. And so you talk about fast processing chips. Mm-hmm. The processing chips that are in AI make an i9, which is the best quality consumer-based product you can get today on a laptop, makes it look like Mickey Mouse. Right. Mickey Mouse. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's four times the speed, without question. And as far as the RAM, it's 128 gigs of RAM alone. Most personal PCs are somewhere between 32 and 64. So it's double that. So it can read, write, and index at the same time. So it's going to take that hour worth of footage and it's going to consolidate it down to eight minutes of the highlights. So it sounds like quantum computing there. It's pretty close. A little bit of entanglement. Yeah, it's yeah. pretty close. Yeah. yeah. The guy who talked to, uh, the best about that was Rohan Hall. Okay. Uh, he was on this cast. He's doing blockchain for technology. Uh, Votum is the company that is writing the blockchain code for the immunology passports for COVID. Really? I read about it in an article. I was like, man, this guy really has his act together. Mm-hmm. They're doing some really different things. And they were working directly with Oracle. And there mm-hmm. you go. And blockchain's coming in like a free train at the healthcare at the same time. Well, it's needed, right? You need some type of encryption. Yeah. And it, without it, we're, we're not going to be anywhere. Yeah. And that's where it's going to mess with the OSI 8001 medical safety codes mm-hmm. as far as making sure that no one can hack and Windows 10 and all that kind of stuff. So there are a lot of variables. But that's what I mean when I went back to the earlier part is there's too many companies not talking and they have their own proprietary code, which means they're not omnidirectional so they can learn from each other. Mm -hmm. And it's a bunch of bullshit. But that's another one of the reasons why I know healthcare is behind and why people may be afraid. Something's not related to that. Uh, To your point, we do spend a lot of time. First question, typically for medical equipment, does it integrate with our EHR? Yeah. The, the EHR is now the bottleneck on do you select now they can't a piece keep of up. equipment? They can't keep up either because, I mean, you have the two major, the epic concerners, That's it. and it's kind of like a, a Bronx deal, like, fuck you, pay me. <laughs> <laughs> it really yeah. is, right? Yeah. And because <laughs> everything goes back to the patient portal at this right. point, right? And that's a large in, – in, when you go back to another point that I brought up as far as why people are so highly dissatisfied with healthcare – a lot of it's not even their their fault. No. The, the healthcare institution's fault. I do think there does need to be some changes in healthcare to really make it patient-focused or patient-centric. Yeah. You know, you hit on it earlier, wearables, and really controlling your data. Mm-hmm. Um, I read a book recently, Surveillance Capital with Soshana. It was a very daunting and scary look at our current state and our future if we really don't start controlling our personal data. Mm. But then you extend it to your wearables, and now your health PHI is really out there for anyone. Yeah. Party apps and everything else that are reselling all your data and everything else. So I think if the consumer can really control their data, it will force marketplace to Agreed. you know, kind of yeah. create products and interfaces and integration that will allow things. Because to your point, if my watch can do my blood pressure, my SpO2, my heart rate, do I need to go in for an annual physical? Can I send the information and then just come in for 15 minutes? Can we do it through telehealth? 
there's a lot that can happen. Mm. Um, but I think it's the technology adoption and at what pace. I think at this point with COVID, the consumer may drive it in the future, right? Because that, that's what the models are at least trying to yeah. shape. The one thing, though, I would say if you have a major company, let's just use a Philips, a Siemens, mm-hmm. Strikers of the yeah. word, Medtronic. Mm-hmm. Let's use Medtronic because they're the largest shipper yeah. in, in the U.S., actually globally, as far as their products. If you have a company like Medtronic come up with a, a new technology, I would say they put a good amount of R&D, R&D. behind it. You should invest into that or take a really hard, considerable look at bringing that technology on board. Right. If it's a small company, like a medtech startup, risk. It's a risk. that's a risk mm-hmm. without question because you don't know where they're going to go. Do they lose funding? What's going to happen, right. et cetera. But if you have a major partner that's coming up with something new that can really benefit you, stop with the fair stuff. Yeah. You know, I, I look at it and I laugh, right? Because when you think about it, Da Vinci's had, this is a perfect example. Da mm. Vinci's had a monopoly on robotics. Titan tried. That's going to change. You know, yeah. And, and you look at Medtronic, mm-hmm. like you said, you know, one of the largest healthcare providers out there, they have a robot on the horizon at the con. Same thing. J&J is going to release one probably within the next two years. And what happens in the marketplace, right? Hopefully they're writing some code that's open, open source, so that we will be able to connect and pull the data and everything else. But I don't know if that's the case. Mm. Um, when I look at the amount of risk, when you look at risk mitigation, right, and balancing the amount of risk, I would probably choose a Medtronic versus a new school company right. that's, you know, fresh on the market where you got capital invested, they have a sales force, they have an education and training program, things like that, that infrastructure that you need to really invest because that's what you're doing. You're investing in a capital asset. Yeah. And then you're hoping that will in turn, generate additional financial revenues for the organization, but also yield a superior patient quality outcomes and put you into a competitive place for your current healthcare market. That's the other thing. New introductions to new technology, unless it's that disruptive, don't release it. <laughs> Sell the patent. Make your money that way. So so, so now <laughs> you've, you've touched on one that it drives me crazy. So mm. I've done value analysis my whole career because that's essentially what I, you know, and I think this podcast is a value analysis. You're, you're a value analysis. You're presenting healthcare technologies, yeah. open forum for people to come in and have that conversation for the consumers and or physicians, clinicians, and healthcare yeah. market to hear that and then be able to determine if this is something that they want to introduce, adopt, you know, and everything else. And I, and I think it's, it's a good forum. But within the value analysis segment and looking at the differential, I always say that there is a very unique distinction between evolutionary and Mm. revolutionary technology. Yes. When you're talking to companies in healthcare sales and they want to come in and ask for a premium. And I say, this is an evolutionary piece of technology. I'm just going to pay you what I was paying you for your premium and then push the premium down. If it's revolutionary and it's coming out and it's going to change everything about it, then that's where we on the healthcare administrative side say, okay, let's invest in that technology because it's going to change the way our workflows, our patient outcomes, and our financial models. The constant reaching into our pocket because you went from iOS 12 to 13 and to 14, I'm not paying you anything. And it should be just like, uh, right, it should be free. You know, I understand the hardware investment, but these software upgrades and everything else, you know, it, it's just an annuity. I mean, it's a money grab. So it's not really yielding additional value. Yeah. Well, I mean, you could have said any better. That's the... Obviously, I got a little soapbox. Let me get off. It's good <laughs> stuff because, I mean, it's it's true. I mean, it's just because you come out with new software and you, you had to pay some people to do it doesn't mean you should be 
you should be looking at the long-term relationship versus the short-term financial gain. And that's where the mistake is. Well, you, you talked about it earlier, right? If only 2 or 3% of their overall revenues are being put into R&D, don't come sit in front of me in my office to talk about your new pricing model and how much money you invested in R&D and that you have to make it back up when it was through M&A or right. you know, some other avenue that somebody else invested a lot in R&D, but you didn't invest anything in R&D and you're still trying to charge a premium on it. That's a completely separate topic. <laughs> All right, man. So this this is uh, something. Well, I've only had one person so far say this was the easiest one, but you get to leave the audience with anything you like. What would you like to tell them? I will say that the experience that I had over at Mount Sinai, getting the autonomy to really introduce some of the best tech in healthcare for those surgical suites and working <clears throat> with the physicians and the collaborative approach and their openness to really trying to understand what the technology is offering, how they could put it into their day-to-day -day workflows and where they would see, you know, at the end of the day, additional value mm. was instrumental. I, I would not give that up at all. And really going through and looking at that iconic building as you drive across the bridge is absolutely Beautiful. amazing. I'm looking forward to the future here at the University of Miami with the additional resources through the academic side and, and research and really what we're able to do by pulling in all those additional resources and being able to tap into minds and resources and instrumentation and equipment that wasn't afforded in the past is such an exciting future. So if you're working in healthcare, I think you got to be able to adapt, be agile, and, you know, really love learning and technology. Mm, yeah. So. Well said. Yeah. I'm going to add one little last note. Sure. Sure. I've said that this will be the third time, the last time I say it, but I had Nate pegged for the top five to get on the show. He said he's coming back. <laughs> I, I am. I, I think we should have an entire two hours dedicated and we should have a panel discussion on healthcare sales. We could do um, that. We both know the right people that I, we can arrange that to. Yeah, it, it'd be a testosterone <laughs> and estrogen filled room with okay. a lot of, uh, you know, I'll have to buy some more microphones. High, high performers, uh, <laughs> you know, going at it, but it'd be an interesting conversation. Listen, so the reason why Nate's here and all the different roles that he has served at all the different hospitals and those communities that he's helped, he really is unique. He really is different. And he thinks outside the box. He does an unbelievable job. The reason why balance continually comes up for me in this conversation is because he balances home life. He has three children. He has other people who he loves. And then he balanced. Yes, he didn't do it alone. But I'm telling you, I worked alongside him. And he, as well as two other people, the only three people that I know that was managing that product day to day, he did it in a way that when you're on the outside, you're like, what's the move here? Like, what's going on? But when it came to fruition, oh, oh, wow. That was a smart move. The amount of knowledge that he has, he could be a CEO in my estimation. Um, one day, one day. One day, we'll get there, right? Yeah, I'm but, working um, towards it. I, I do think that the, the business partners that we had really helped us along that path, uh, number one. And more importantly, when we look at the collaborative effort on the project, everybody was focused on trying to build it. Now, is it? going to be an iconic application of the technology in five hmm. years. History will judge us. Yeah. Right? You know? we'll see. Time will tell. Um, it always ho does. Ho hopefully it's not a Monday morning quarterback, uh, <laughs> you know, but, um, you know, I'm very proud of being part of that project. And I think everybody should get a chance to go and tour through the building. And while you're down there, you're on the beach, you, you can't go wrong. Well, I mean, here's the, the simplest takeaway is your experience 
combined with what you learned helped shape that tower and building. Everyone else's experience with the collective of what you experienced and learned as they tour that building will reshape a different experience for somebody else. And that's what it's all about. I like that. That's it. Yeah. I want to thank Nate again for coming on. I appreciate the invite. Thank you, everyone, for being listeners of the 360 Nation. And we'll see you the next one. Take care. Boom. <laughs> dude, that was, that was good, right? Killer, dude. Yeah. yeah. That was killer. I look forward to joining Nate again in conversation as there is so much to discuss, learn, and develop from. If you like Healthcare 360 and enjoyed this conversation, give this podcast a share and don't forget to write a review. It really helps out the show. Oh, and before I forget, head on over to YouTube where you can watch this entire cast with Nate Ewan in its entirety, as well as over 20 short clip deep dives for when you're on the move. Thanks again. This is Scott Burgess. And from all of us with the Healthcare 360 team, we'll see you for episode number 60 with Dr. Christina Rahm. And as always, thank you for being here. And thank you for being a part of the 360 Nation. See you next time.